The Solid 7 Podcast is fueled by Jocko Go. Engineered for anyone who wants to get after it in life, pre-meeting, pre-testing, pre-negotiation, or pre-mission. If you're looking for an extra cognitive or physical edge, Jocko Go is your force multiplier. With 95 milligrams of caffeine and zero sugar, the keto-friendly Jocko Go will give you a physical and cognitive boost without the crash that you experience with average energy drinks. Visit JockoFuel.com today, and you can use our promo code SOLID7, that's S-O-L-I-D-7, to get 10% off your order. Get on the path and get after it. Oh, and because lawyers exist, these statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration, and this product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And welcome back to a Solid 7 Podcast, a better-than-average podcast, if I do say so myself, and I always do. I am, of course, your moderately humble host, Kale, and uh, happy to have here with me this week, entrepreneur, uh, author, best-selling author, I think I'm, I can say that, right, in some category, yeah. and uh, head of marketing for the Orange Pill app, Mr. Brian DeMint. Welcome to the podcast, sir. Well, thanks, Kale. I appreciate it, man. Thank you for having me on. Nice to have you. As uh, with all great podcast guests these days, this happened through the magic of of Twitter and the interwebs. So uh, I'm a, a big fan of uh, the guys over at uh, Tuttle Twins, both versions, both uh, Connor Boyack on the written side and uh, Dan and Johnny and the team over at Tuttle Twins TV. And you were hosting them on a, a Twitter space that uh, I hopped on. And of course, if... Uh, you know, if a podcaster's sitting in front of a mic, they're going to run their mouth at some point. It's like being around a CrossFitter or somebody who's eating keto and uh, kind of... pickleballers. Pickleballers yes. is the new one. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, pickleball might be a legit cult, but uh, we, we chat, <laughs> chatted some there on a, on a Twitter space and connected uh, after. And uh, it was it was about Bitcoin. It was about hard money and sound money and... I threw some questions out there on the space and you followed up with some off air and were kind enough to send me a copy of your book, which I've thoroughly enjoyed Bitcoin evangelism. And, uh, you know, I threw out the invite for the podcast and, and here we sit. Oh, thanks man. It, it, no, it was great having you. Cause I was hosting a Twitter space and interviewing the guys from total twins. And, and, uh, it's always one of those weird things where as a host, when you say, Hey, does anybody from the audience have any questions? Like you hope that everybody in the audience is going to bring up some real good questions and make you look good. Cause you don't want the the guests to feel like the audience doesn't care. Right. Like yeah. if, you know, if nobody asks a question or makes a comment, but with Twitter spaces, a lot of people just tune in. And I mean, imagine if somebody listening to your podcast right now, you're just like, I have a question for you. It's like in class back in the day when you didn't raise your hand, but the teacher's asking you to answer a question kind of thing. So anyways, it was uh, it was refreshing when you when you stepped up and, and asked asked some questions and and you know yeah it worked out for you though because you, you got them coming on on the pod soon and uh, you made some new friends and the reason why we were interviewing them uh, in my Bitcoin capacity was because they had just released an episode of the Total Twins about Bitcoin and it was a really good episode it was like very on point accurate um, very detail oriented so it, those guys are so impressive with their yeah. ability to cover all these different subjects, but do it in a way where the people that are the hardcore of that element, whether it's economics or whether it's Bitcoin or whether it's, I don't know, liberty and freedom, 
like they're going to check off all those boxes and make the people that are the hardcores in that, in that vector happy. And, uh, it's a good resource and a good tool. And so, yeah, that, yeah, worked out fantastic. And you were, uh, you were a real hero for stepping in there. Well, I was uh, happy to, to contribute uh, such as I did, you know, and of course had to throw out the shameless plug to, uh, to invite them onto the pod at the end. Uh, and, uh, you know, because you just turn into a low key door to door salesman when you're your own podcast booker, but it, their ability, uh, on that show. And of course we'll get in there. It's, they're going to be two episodes away from this one. There'll be episode 122, uh, and it's going to be right before uh, the, uh, it'll drop just the day before their next uh, live stream for their new episode. So we'll definitely talk more about the show then, but their ability to take these, uh, what can be complicated and convoluted and very adult concepts and break them down in a way that kids get them. It's amazing. And it was probably, you know, sitting here as a, you know, a 42 year old, uh, you know, relatively grown man. It was the best breakdown and piece of marketing for Bitcoin that I have seen to date. Uh, now, prior to reading your book, but uh, I think, I don't think you'll take any offense when I say slightly more accessible. Your your books, uh, you know, I think is easier read as it can be on the topic. Uh, and yet still the, the cartoon still slightly more accessible. A cartoon is always going to win out (laughs) over any other form of media, right? It's just, it's because what you get to do, it removes any of the guilt you have about asking those questions. It's like, yeah, I'm watching this with my kids. I'm doing this for my kids. <laughs> and you know what? Like, I'm just going to watch it because, but you're sitting there engaged in watching it and, and wanting those answers for yourself. Um, I mean, Connor Boyack's the, the, the miraculous pencil of uh, the book. I, I sat down and read that to my kids in the process. It wasn't, wasn't intentional or anything. It was just one of the books we were reading for bedtime um, while I was in the process of, of writing my book and it, it spoke to me in a way of like, man, there's, there, you got to simplify the message. And like, granted it, we, I, my book's not in story format, but it really was inspirational. And, and to the point of, you need to have more practical analogies. You need to have things more tangible and more, more accessible for people that the miraculous pencil. If anybody, um, if you have kids, read it to them. If you don't have kids, read it for yourself and just yes. hide it on your bookshelf somewhere. It's probably the best book on economics you're ever going to get. So, so yeah, like it, the same thing. They knocked it out of the park with the Bitcoin episode. It was the, probably the best cartoon or the best episode of any kind of content on Bitcoin you could possibly get. So watch that show. If you want to read my yeah. book or listen to podcasts afterwards, go for it. But you're going to be better off than like 90% of society just having watched a 20 minute cartoon. Yeah. And they, Connor's done that, you know, what they do with the show, he's done with the books on so many heavy topics. So it's like, if you're never going to sit down and read the law, if you're never going to sit down and read wealth of nations, um, just read the Tuttle twins books. It's like cliff notes, but more entertaining. (laughs) It's it's fantastic. So, well, as an entrepreneur, uh, you'll appreciate, we have a little bit of podcast business. We got to get out of the way here before we dive in. Of course, there is always bills to pay. Uh, now I tell you what, shipping podcasts, gifts has been the bane of my existence here recently. Uh, UP or Amazon has failed to recognize that they were delivering to UPS stores, all types of fun things. And true to form this week, your case of, uh, orange Jocko go, which seemed like only the appropriate flavor to send when speaking to you today, uh, is sitting, sitting at your office. And so that'll be waiting for you. So I'm going to toast for both of us with my, uh, my orange Jocko Go here for you. The podcast has been fueled since day one by Jocko Go, and 
at this point, we just do it for fear of failure. Like if we stop, I think everything will just spin out of control. So, so cheers, sir. So this is, um, I don't want to say it's a difficult topic, but, uh, you know, getting into Bitcoin, you know, broader blockchain crypto, uh, right. It's one of those things where now my feeling is you, you, you don't get to start the, the conversation from scratch. You've got to, to, to educate anybody in this space. I feel like, and this was my experience with reading your book. First, you've, you've got to kind of walk back misinformation that's been so broadly broadcast so that you can get to a zero point to begin from to then say, okay, no, this is what it really is. This is what's really happening and differentiating some. It's such a, uh, I feel like a, a muddied space at this point because there's so much quote unquote crypto out there and it's not, it's not all created equal, but in the eyes of the layman, a lot of it's viewed the same and bad news or bad press for one thing is bad press for all. Um, but I think, you know, I'm guessing, you know, based on, on the title of Bitcoin evangelism, like taken from my experience as a Christian and having uh, worked in churches and in ministry, every good evangelist I know has, has a pathway to get somebody to, to the end point. Right. So in that sense, I kind of want to let you kind of lead how we get to this explanation of really helping people maybe go from zero to having at least a fundamental understanding. Um, yeah. Which, you know, it took I mean, you a whole book. That's a fantastic to do and, question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you wrote a whole book on it and we'll just knock it out in like 90 to 120 minutes on the podcast. We good to go. We'll get through as much baby. as we can, but I feel like a logical place to start with before we get into it is why anyone should give a crap what you have to say about this topic to begin with. Like how, how do you come to this place where you're somebody who's, um, uh, you know, a Bitcoin expert? Well, I think that the reason why I chose Bitcoin evangelism as the title is because there's so many um, echoes of, of Christian evangelism. So, um, you know, Romans says that people can 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 know God, know that he's there because they can plainly see his creation. Um, I think that's the same thing with with Bitcoin to some degree. Like we've over the last couple of years, we can see a need for good sound money because money in the hands of government, money in the, in the hands of individual entities and private ent entities like the Federal Reserve, which is not a government agency. It's a it's a business. It's a for-profit business, um, which first most people don't understand. But like that has become apparent to people that there's a problem in the system. And therefore, like I need something better than this. And so when people look around and they see creation, they can, they can see, um, that there's a creator. Right. Um, and so we can see one thing and see a need for another. And then the, the, probably the most, the most on the nose part of, of the, the analogy of evangelism is anytime, you know, what is the gospel? The gospel simply means the good news. Well, if I just told somebody the good news, like, Hey, if you accept Jesus, you can go to heaven. If I don't tell them the bad news first, the good news isn't really that relevant because they might think that, well, I'm going to heaven anyways. Like I need to first tell you the bad news. And that's what Bitcoin evangelism does. It, it explains what the Federal Reserve is. It explains how inflation actually works. It explains how how immoral our system is. I mean, I think that's the one thing that that this the sense of morality and the sense of doing hard things that are ultimately good, like getting up and making your bed and getting up and getting into a, a workout or taking an ice bath or whatever it happens to be that people realize like there's good things that come out of doing things the hard way. 
And the easy way that we've been doing things with printing money to instead of instead of uh, having a society that's growing in terms of wealth, we're just printing things and promising more money to people. Um, that's actually a form of theft. It's it's highly highly immoral. The Old Testament, I believe it's in Proverbs, says that God hates unbalanced weights and unfair scales. It, it God actually detests. Of, there's a lot of things that God doesn't like. God doesn't like sin. But the Bible is very specific about certain things that God absolutely detests. And robbing people in a financial way is one of the things that God detests. Now, if I saw my neighbor getting robbed at the, you know, at the point of a gun out in front of my house, I believe it'd be my moral obligation at the very least to call the police, right? To do something that is going to stop him from being stolen from. Um, as a second amendment, uh, concealed carry Californian, uh, you know, even in California in certain counties, we're able to carry pretty, you know, it's our, our, we have good sheriffs around here. So a lot of uh, me and my friends, we do carry, um, I, my, my, I believe my moral obligation would be to, to protect my neighbor physically, you know, also call the police, but actually, I think it'd be my moral obligation to do that. So why? And I, I don't think anybody disagrees with that, right? Like everybody would say, yeah, call the police, protect your neighbor, do whatever you can that's in your power to protect your neighbor. But why, when my neighbor is being slowly stolen from, from the system itself, through inflation, through through a system that actually, if you understand it, siphons value out of everybody that's not closest to the money printers, that's how the system's designed to perpetuate itself. Um, that's also immoral. So if you're aware that your neighbor's being stolen from. I believe it's our moral obligation to do that. That's the bad news. The bad news that they, so telling my neighbor going, so instead of pulling my gun on the bad guy, the way that I protect my neighbor is simply by informing him. That's the Bitcoin evangelism angle is, hey, my neighbor, you're being stolen from. This is how inflation is stealing from you. Do, do you feel, do you have that sense that you're working exponentially harder, but getting exponentially less. Or to my to my younger friends or people that have mentored, like I know you graduated from college and you're you got a job that's making seventy thousand dollars a year. When I graduated from college, that sounded like a great salary, but to you, that's like bare bone salary. Seventy k a year is never going to buy you a house where we live. You're never going to be able to to make that next step in life. Do you sense that? Do you see that? That that's. That's not by accident. That's by a system that perpetuates theft in a really, really subtle way. And so why is overt theft obviously bad, but subtle theft is, is somehow not so bad? No, no, the Bible speaks very clearly. Actually, that's God detests that to maybe even a higher degree, just unbalanced weights. That's the one time in the New Testament that Jesus gets really, really pissed off is when he goes to the temple and yes, they're defiling God's temple by by turning it into you know kind of a charade. But but the thing that's at the core of that is that the money changers were robbing. They were ripping people off. They were coming to the temple and they were saying, "Oh, you don't have the right type of coinage. You have pagan coins from Samaria, yeah. and you need to use the Jewish shekel to get in the temple." So if you want God to forgive you, and if you want God to accept your sacrifice, and you want to get into the temple, guess what? You're going to need to turn in your Sumerian coins for our Jewish shekel. And even though it was supposed to be like maybe a two to one ratio for exchange, they had a captive audience and they said, you know, even in, instead of a two to one ratio, we're going to charge you 20 to one ratio because guess what? You need to get in the temple if you want to go to heaven. And so these people were actively robbing people in kind of a subtle way. They weren't putting a gun or a sword to their face or anything like that. They were just saying, 
we've got a captive audience and we can steal from you and there's nothing you can do about it. That made Jesus angry. There's like, Jesus didn't get righteously angry when he was on the cross. He didn't get righteously angry when people were spitting on him. He didn't get righteously angry when people were making fun of his mom. What he got angry about was people being stolen from in a really insidious way. And so that's the bad news. And I think people have a general sense of that. Um, and so the good news is for the first time in human history, we have a decentralized network that allows people to exchange value with no middleman, with no third party, with nobody that gets to tell you what to do with it. And so the billionaire and the single mom in the inner city for the first time ever get to play by the exact same rules in a financial system. That's a really good moral case for, for Bitcoin. And uh, that's the good news of the evangelism that we have. Well, let's, um, you know, because the, the, the obvious question before anybody would spend time reading your book, listening to a podcast about Bitcoin, doing any research into blockchain or crypto is, is why would I even need it? Right. That's what you're talking about with what's, what's the bad news, because if there's no bad news, then I'm, I'm not going to spend my time on it. Um, so let's dig into some of the, the specifics of what the bad news is right now. Right. Uh, like I'm the very tail end of, of Gen X. You're at that very top end of, of the millennials. Um, which I don't mean as derogatory as it sounds, and uh, but we've spent our our entire lives in a world where um, the U.S. dollar, the greenback, was the reserve currency of the entire world. Um, you know, I'm uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that you're as big a fan of Ron Swanson as I am. And uh, there's this <laughs> there's this great clip from uh, the show Parks and Rec when uh, this character Ron Swanson, he's actually over in Great Britain. He's in England, or whichever one of the six or seven countries make up Great Britain. There, who knows? Um, but uh, he's trying to pay for like a postcard that he thinks is funny, and he tries to hand the guy American money, mm. and this this. English street vendor won't take it. And Ron's flabbergasted. He's like, that's the greatest piece of paper on the face of the earth. What do you mean? You don't accept American currency, but that's, you know, a little hyperbolic, you know, that's, that's a gag on really what we've kind of lived our lives with and experienced. Now it hasn't always been the case, but we've been lulled in this sense of thinking it's always going to be the case. And it's only here recently where within our generations and people who are adults are about to be adults right now, have felt like, oh no, our like the money's not always going to work the same way it always has. We, you know, the generation just before ours, they lived through a period of significant inflation and felt that and under and high interest rates and understood what that was. And we've spent our adult lives with essentially free money, low to zero interest rates, um, quote unquote low inflation. But so it's just now, it's a little bit easier sell now on, oh wait, no, it's the money, it's it's fragile. It is susceptible to these things. So let's, you know, to the extent that we can kind of break it down and simplify it in a few ways, what what is the problem? Why why should we be looking for something other than than dollar bills? Well, you hear people say this thing because they're trying to sound subtle. Um, that, that history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. I, I disagree with that. I think that history doesn't rhyme. It just repeats. Like it just, the same things happen over and over and over. Like no fiat currency, which means a government issued currency. It, it's a fancy way of saying there's nothing behind it other than a government's promise. 
Um, and so that right there should, should throw off the alarm bells for most people that are kind of skeptical of, you know, of government and, and, and that sort of thing, which used to be the liberals were skeptical of government, but now I guess it's more the conservatives that are skeptical of government. And those, those cycles kind of go back and forth, but it's like, how many of us use the Persian dollar? Uh, Persia was once the most powerful empire on the face of the earth. We don't, it's absolutely irrelevant. Nobody does it except for as a collector's item. How many people use Roman currency? None of us use it because they were once the most, even though they were once the most powerful nation, that their currency is no longer relevant. Same thing for Germany, same thing for every economic and military power of history. Their currency is absolutely irrelevant today. And so history repeats. We are the superpower today in the United States. We have the, we're the economic superpower. We're the currency superpower. Um, History dictates that that will not always be the case. And the reasons why those other currencies failed is the exact same reason why the U.S. dollar is failing right now. It's called debasement. Um, back in the day, it was that Persia would use the solid gold coin. And then it's always to fund war, which this is the other crazy part that it repeats. It's to fund war and other government initiatives. But you start out with perfectly gold coins and then they realize that they don't have enough gold to fund the war for conquest, for territory, that sort of thing. And so then they make the coin 80% gold and 20% copper. And then they need more, they need more currency. So now it's 50 and 50, and then they use even cheaper metals. And, and, and that's called debasement. Well, that's exactly what happens to the U S dollar. We just print more of it. That's the equivalent of making your gold coins, 80% gold, 50% gold, 20% gold. And that's happening today. So unless people think that history has no relevance, this thing that's happened dozens of times to the most, not some obscure nation in history, but the most powerful nations of history, if you think that for some reason this time is different, then like I've got a bag of ice to sell you in a desert because like you're you're gullible, like you're 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 just completely like looking at the short-sighted thing of like I, I could have this now but you have no long, that person has no long-term horizon for what they're looking at. They're, they're, they're going to be a slave to that system perpetually. So if you don't want to be a slave to that system of always trying to catch more dollars that are losing more value, then the good thing is that there's an answer for that. Um, history also dictates that, that, that good sound money is the fix to bad corrupt money. And so let me give you a use case here. You hear people refer to, to Weimar Germany and the hyperinflation. We all learned about that in high school, taking a wheelbarrow full of cash in order to go buy a loaf of bread. Um, Weimar Germany, after World War I, they their government did massive, massive stimulus because they had to, to you know, they had war reparations. They had all sorts of economic problems. So their solution was to turn on the money printers. They were physically printing currency. Um, they were they had twenty nine thousand percent inflation per year. It was it was absolutely crazy. So it means every few days the prices are doubling. Um, how did you know they, Germany doesn't have hyperinflation today? How did they fix it? Well, what they did was they ran a parallel currency, a a fixed supply currency next to their other currency, the, the mark. So the mark was the hyperinflating currency. It was the one that was inflating by twenty nine thousand percent. The Renton mark was a fixed currency. It wasn't backed by gold because Germany was so poor, they didn't back it by gold. They actually backed it by land. Um, and so they told the population, they said, you can either use the hyperinflating currency or you can use the new, the Renton mark. It's your choice. 
society gravitate or gravitates over to that. Do you want to get paid in wages where like you have to go spend it by the time you get off or you're going to, it's going to lose value by tomorrow morning, or are you going to put your economic power, your economic savings in the currency that is backed by something stable? And so that's always the fix to a hyperinflating currency is a fixed supply currency. Now, the problem is the reason why that's never a good long-term solution, and that's why I made that, that analogy of selling you ice cubes in the desert and might help you for like a few minutes, but those ice cubes are going to melt shortly thereafter, is that a backed currency, so a gold-backed currency, which libertarians are big fans of, um, which I'm a libertarian, but I'm not a fan of a gold-backed currency or a land-backed currency or any kind of oil-backed, asset-backed currency is, you're always trusting that the government's going to hold that peg. And 100% of the time, they always erode that over time. They then debase <laughs> that backed currency as well. The US used to have a gold-backed currency, then we debased that as well. So there's always a trust layer in government-backed currency. So whether it's fiat, which means it's just their promise, or whether it's backed currency, you're always trusting in that entity to hold to that promise. Now, that's what's fundamentally revolutionary about Bitcoin. It's called trustless. There's nobody to trust in except for axioms. Axioms are things that are plainly apparent. You're having faith in things like mathematics and cryptography, that the rules that are set are going to continue to play out. And, and those are enforced by forces beyond man. So we're no longer trusting in man. We're trusting in things like mathematics and physics um, rather than uh, a promise than somebody with a rubber stamp that says pass or fail. I, I knew about uh, the issues with the Weimar Republic, which one, I mean, it's, uh, you know, we, we put them into the, into that position. The, the world put them in that position at the end of, of World War One and saddled them with those the, those yeah. debts. Um, you made the great point, point in your book of, you know, adjusting for, wait for it, inflation. Uh, their debts then were roughly equivalent to what we're experiencing in the U.S. now, being north of $30 trillion in debt. Um, but I, I had never heard about the uh, land-backed currency as, as a fix. I had never heard about the concept of land-backed currency, period. That's interesting. I've always thought about it in, you know, other commodities like gold and silver. Yeah, well, they were so poor, they had nothing else except that they had a lot of territory. And so the funny thing was there's there's all sorts of reports, and I don't know if this is true or not, but the government just backing it by land that was owned by its citizens. It's like land they didn't even own. And I mean, because how it's just a deed to a property somewhere. So you don't, yeah, you, yeah. There, there wasn't a way to enforce it. It wasn't a good system, but it was enough trust to kind of get things back in shape for a little bit. Yeah, yeah there, I mean, not perfect, but there is a little bit of genius there. It's also tempting, you know, looking at the issues, and I don't think this would be a solve for us, but when you look at a map of federally owned land of the United States, and, and you look at it as you shift from east to west, as the, as the federal government basically held, uh, you know, incoming states hostage for free land as they came in, I mean, you look out, it's infuriating. Like the amount of uh, Nevada in particular that's owned by the federal government is insane. I'm like, well, we're probably not going to fill Fort Knox back up with gold unless somebody happens to think there's still any there. Um, but we, they are sitting on a lot of land. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, that, that might be their solution. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you did have I, I, it's funny you brought this up because this is one of the lines uh, that I highlighted in the book that stood out to me. Um, is when debts are fixed and currencies are not, currencies will always be manipulated, m manipulated relative to the debt. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's a powerful concept that people that people need to understand. Um, when we talk about uh, if we're looking at life and what's going on right now in our economic system as a chess game, we know that our opponent only has a few moves, and the move that systems, that governments, that that the powers that be always make because it's the only thing that they can do is that they have to inflate their currency because when they're when their debt gets to a certain level you cannot raise if we if we tax every billionaire in the United States 100% of their of their wealth we wouldn't even pay for a fraction of all the debt that we owe like it doesn't matter how much wealth redistribution or any of that kind of stuff we cannot pay for our debts other than making the the debt less consequential so $30 trillion today is a lot of money. But if you go back to the Hungarian hyperinflation, so everybody talks about Weimar, Weimar hyperinflation. That was only the third biggest inflation ever. There's two bigger ones. The Hungarian hyperinflation after World War II was even bigger. And that was, so the, the Weimar one was 29,000% inflation, enough to kill people and leave people in the streets starving. The Hungarian hyperinflation, which I I feel privileged. I'm Hungarian and German. So it's like in my blood. Um, the Hungarian one was 4.2 quadrillion percent. It was it it, it was absurd how much a, a loaf of bread would go up. It would be one dollar one year and six billion dollars the next year for a loaf of bread. Six billion of their their I call them dollars, but they're six billion of their 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 Hungarian their it's it was called like a <laughs> I always say it wrong. It's like a pedo. And so it sounds like I'm talking about pedophiles. Yes. Um, but it's like Which, so, that got Elon in trouble. You can't don't do that. You can't throw that. Just throw that word around to people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We might have to bleep that out for the podcast <laughs> so you don't get censored. Um, but anyways, so the, the the purpose is $30 trillion. The reason why I'm saying this $30 trillion is a lot of money right now. There is a context in which our government and the Federal Reserve could collude to make $30 trillion a very easy amount of money to repay the people that hold that 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 the that debt the people that gave that money to the United States government is predominantly US citizens people buying treasury bills and things like that so what's going to happen is everybody that has a very quote unquote safe investment in treasury bills is going to get absolutely obliterated because if you bought say a million dollars of treasury bills, the government's going to pay you back that million dollars plus interest like they promised you. But guess what? That million dollars is not going to buy you a car. It's not going to get you a down payment on a house. It's not going to get you a, a bag of groceries. Like they're going to have to debase the money so much that they're going to make good on all their promises. So they won't quote unquote default, but People are going to get very, very hurt in the process. And I think the political angle that they're going to take, even though like 90% of that debt is owed to American citizens, or maybe not 90%, like 60% of it. But what they're going to say is about three or four trillion of it is owed to China. And I think that that's the guise in which they're going to do this. They're going to say, guys, it's okay for us to do this because China is going to bear the burden of it and that they're an economic enemy. And so this is okay. I think that's the angle they're going to take, but they're not, they're going to fail to, to acknowledge the fact that it's mostly American investors that are going to get crushed in that. Well, I mean, and, and you make a, a case for, you know, the pros and cons of the various options to get ourselves uh, out of this one, that there, there is no painless route out of where we're at as a country fiscally right now. It, it doesn't exist. There's no route that has no pain. But you can, <clears throat> you know, just the reality of politics and how you see our, our government right and left posture 
when they're in power because they trade off when they're in power. Um, you know, like who thinks the debt ceiling is an issue? 100%. They just flip whoever yeah. uh, is sitting in the White House and whoever holds the, you know, the chambers uh, of uh, the legislature, they just flip on that issue. It's, it's who, who says it's dire in the end of the world and who says it's is fiscally responsible with the exception of, you know, the odd man out like uh, Rand, Rand Paul and his dad. They'll stay consistent throughout, but everybody else just flips. But like you look at just recently, you know, they're in a big fight over raising our debt ceiling again and it's the end of the world and we're going to default, which is funny because money doesn't stop flowing into the coffers. They just have to stop money. They would just have to stop spending money they don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, so there would be some pain. But um it's become very popular to just float this option of, oh, we'll just mint a $1 trillion coin. It's the most absurd thing ever. Yeah, but that's but really they, being talked about. But they can. Yeah. And it would, were they to mint a $1 trillion coin, it would actually be more constitutionally appropriate. That's there would be true. more constitutional authority for that than how most U.S. dollars enter into the marketplace now, which is through the Fed. And so I, I think you, you touched on it some, that the Fed really isn't what um, most people think it is or what it reads as on the surface um, without taking us just completely info wars. Can you kind of break that down for us to understand? Because the Fed's supposed to be a good one. It's, it's right there. Certainly this is a federal agency. It's the Federal Reserve. Um, you know, so it, we can all just assume that that's a government agency, uh, and it exists to protect the market and protect the dollar and protect the economy and even things out and pre- prevent things like the Great Depression. So, what's why are things so wrong? Yeah, I mean, the, the Federal Reserve is as much of a federal agency as Federal Express. Like people just need to understand that that that's it's 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 in name only. Um, and there's a brilliant book on it. Um, I, I touch on it and kind of give you the cliff notes, but, um, the creature from Jekyll Island is a very like well-documented, it takes you through the narrative and the context of why the federal reserve was created. And, but it was created by banks for banks, um, at that time in 1913, or it was formed in 1913, but leading up to that time, banks were very unpopular. It was kind of like the sentiment we have now, like down with the banks, they're corrupt, Yada yada yada, and so they came up with a brilliant marketing plan. They uh, Senator Aldrich, uh, he was kind of like the Bernie Sanders or the, and not not in terms of his political views, but in terms of like their senators that are more popular than other senators, right? And so Senator Aldrich, um, and he was he was related to the Rockefeller family uh, by marriage, and so like there's just it's all like so incestuous. All these families, they're all like interrelated, intermarried, and all this kind of stuff, but. This isn't conspiracy. This is documented. And the reason why we know this is documented is because a few years later, about 10 years after the creation of the Federal Reserve, everybody thought it was a huge success. And so the guys that did the conspiracy started bragging about it. They, they were in their later years. And so they were like, yeah, like I want to take credit for this. And so they actually are the ones that documented it. But there was about six bankers. They represented about one-sixth of the world's wealth. And they met on this Jekyll Island, Georgia, with Senator Aldrich. And they devised a plan. They said, people hate us right now. People hate the banks. But how do we consolidate power? How, how do we create a cartel? This is exactly what drug dealers in Mexico do. Um, if you know about the early drug trade in Mexico in the 1950s and 1960s, all the marijuana growers, they all competed for American dollars. They all sold their drugs to the United States. But at one point, 
the really sophisticated drug dealers said, no, 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 why are we shooting and killing each other? Let's create a cartel. It's essentially a monopoly so that we can all, instead of having all these expenses of, of warfare and lost product and things like that, instead of having competition, which is the mark of a good free market, no, 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 no. Let's limit competition on our own accord and we'll all make more money for doing so. So you might have six or seven drug dealing you know, um, entities but when they all fall under the cartel, they get to make a lot more profit that way. And so the bankers essentially were doing the same thing. They said, we can compete with one another for customers and we can fight for regulation that's favorable, or we can form one super bank and then have unlimited power. I mean, you, you think, you know, Facebook's corrupt, um, you know, drug pharmaceutical companies are corrupt, all the, you know, all the, 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 you know, the Lockheed Martin, all these different industries that we like to point to as these are the corrupt industries. Is it not fair to assume that the creation of money itself is the most corrupt industry of all? They literally devised a plan to create the most corrupt industry of all, which is the central bank. It's a model that was adopted from, from Europe. They've been doing this in Europe for the last hundred years before that. And so anyways, they didn't know how they were going to get this passed. So Senator Aldrich says, hey, I've got a plan. Everybody hates you guys. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back next month and I'm going to go before the Senate. And I'm going to introduce a bill. It's called the Federal Reserve Act. And I'm going to say that it's an anti-bank bill. It was literally listed as an anti-bank bill. And what your guys' job is, bankers, is to come out in the public and say, please do not pass this bill. It will crush us and we'll all cease to exist. This is going to be the most atrocious regulation on banking. We're going to be handcuffed um, and we're not going to be able to make a profit. They went to the press and the bankers said that, and they basically catfished in the, the entire U.S. population. Senator Aldrich looked like this anti-bank hero, even though he was part of the banking family himself. And then they passed the Federal Reserve Act. So it was literally an absolute propaganda warfare bait and switch type of thing that had implemented a central bank. Americans had two or excuse me, three, two central banks before that since it was America, even before when it was just the colonies, there was also a central bank. Americans hated central banks. And if they called it the American central bank, nobody would have gone for it, but they called it the federal reserve and an anti-banking bill. And so Americans, for lack of a better term, bent over and took it um, gladly. And so it's, it's really, really sad to see that happening. And if you look at any of the charts, you go back to 1913, and look at the value of the U.S. dollar until now, it falls off like a cliff. Since the creation of this entity, 98% of dollars have lost their value. Excuse me. The dollar has lost 98% of its value. So what you used to be able to get for two cents, you now have to pay a dollar for it. I mean, it's kind of a rough equation for it. But it's, it's theft on the biggest magnitude the world's ever seen over the last 110 years. Um, and it was passed with a smile and people were happy to do so. So <clears throat> the, the way the Fed actually functions is that it, it, it is privately run, private, well, not, not so much privately held as there are shareholders. Mm -hmm. We just have no idea who they are. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, so this is what they say. They say that the transparency comes from, because the shareholders are publicly traded companies, i.e. banks, so like JP Morgan and these. So 
that um, that's the level of transparency you get. But the documents that they have, they're protected by law. Um, and nobody enforces any of the things that the Federal Reserve Act says. Ron Paul was famous for saying audit the Fed. The Federal Reserve Act says it stipulates by law that we're supposed to it's supposed to be audited periodically since 1913 it has not been audited once so they don't have to play by any of the rules that the law itself even said it's it's completely egregious and uh, i mean it's one of those things where it's so obviously missing the mark of what's supposed to happen that you almost sound stupid for saying we should we should audit the fed like people will say even though the law says, yes, audit the Fed, we don't do that. Traditionally, we don't audit the Fed. So why are you trying to ruffle feathers here? And that's kind of more of the sentiment. That's how the banks have been, you know, there's, they say there's transparency in it, but there is no transparency. You don't know who, what, who holds what, how profits are allowed to be divvied out and things like that. The, the, the main thing isn't just how they profit. It's, it's the privileges that the banks have. The banks get to hold their, it's, when you when you deposit your money into the bank, that bank doesn't hold your money. They take it to their bank, which is the Federal Reserve, and it's in this exchange between how much money they hold and how much money they're allowed to borrow is where they really siphon value. It's a very convoluted process so that if most people walked in and actually saw the process happening, we probably wouldn't, most of us wouldn't fully understand how we're being stolen from. It's a very convoluted process. And, and Creature from Jekyll Island does a really good job of breaking that down. Um, you'll walk away from that book very, very, very angry. And it's, it's almost like the, what I said earlier, it's like the bad news part of Bitcoin evangelism. Like I do a yeah. brief breakdown of that enough for people to realize, okay, here's the bad news. But if you really want to walk away, like, I feel like a sinner in need of God. <laughs> that kind of bad news. That's the creature of Jekyll Island. It, it'll creature from Jekyll Island. It'll make you feel that way. Well, and I Tuttle Twins has a has a breakdown of uh, there creature you go. Jekyll Island too. So if you need pictures, which <laughs> I, I did mean to say thank you, Brian, because it is like this. You know, there's some weight to Bitcoin evangelism, but not only did you include pictures, but their color, and so I did appreciate. <laughs> the, the, Thank you. The visuals there, but yeah, I and, really, I really wanted to take the the color out because that's very expensive me, for me to do that. My <laughs> wife said absolutely not. She goes, "You have to leave the." So the best marketing move of my entire book was was my wife's suggestion. By the way, well, that's usually how it goes, isn't it? <laughs> well, and you know, before we move on from the Fed, because I think you've done a great job, kind of, uh, in, you know, explaining what the issue is and and you know, kind of what the potential is for it getting uh, any better. Um, you know, with, again, following my own advice of not getting too info wars here, what what irks me as much about the Fed as, as how it's run is that it exists at all because we are supposed to be a nation of laws. We are a constitutional republic, and the there there is no constitutional authority for an organization like the Federal Reserve to exist. the The power to coin money constitutionally lies with Congress. And I've always compared it this way because I, I really think it's, this can't be complicated and I think it's really not. I think it's a very simple concept to understand is if, if you're a buddy of mine and I'm going out of town for a couple of weeks and I say, Hey Brian, we're going to be out of town. Can you feed the cat, watch the house, pick up the mail for me? And I, yeah, no problem. And I give you a key. We're good to go. But if I come back and somebody I don't know, and I've never met or even worse that I don't like, has the key and is in the house, I'm going to be ticked and rightfully so. And whether or not they go, oh, well, I'm a friend of Brian's and he asked me if I'd watch the house for you. 
it's it makes logic everyone makes it makes logical sense to everyone that I have the authority to extend that access to my home to you. And we all understand that it's inherently wrong that you didn't have the authority to extend it any further than that because it wasn't mm-hmm. your authority to give. And that's exactly what we're dealing with. Congress, the, the federal government has no authority, constitutionally or otherwise, to extend that ability to coin mm-hmm. money, to print money, to, you know, however you want to put it, mm-hmm. beyond what we as the people have said they have. And it drives me nuts. Even that, if, even if honestly, it works well. I'm going to steal that. I'm totally stealing that because that's the most, I think that's the most apt description of that. Because yes, that's what the, that's what people will say that they're defending Congress, that they do, they would say they do. Well, if they have the ability to mint money or mint coinage, then they can extend that authority. It does not say that. Like you said, the absurdity, I think gets lost on people. But when you say it like that, which is something that's much less significant, right? Like that would just be a talk between you and me. You'd be like, Brian, you dropped the ball here. Like, why did you do that? Yeah. But if I change the course of human history with what I did, it's much more consequential. And yet for some reason, people overlook it. And on that point, it's like Congress also has the the, the right to declare war. But if they gave the right to declare war to one of the government contracting, like, uh, you know, uh, armory, you know, ar- arm supply dealers, like <laughs> that, that would be a, a, an obvious conflict of interest, yeah. right? Um, and so we, obviously, we know that they don't have the right to extend, they do not have the right to extend that power to anybody else. Yeah. And it's, you know, I'd feel the same way if it worked well, if it ran well, if we, if it did even out the economy and it was just a steady climb. And if it wasn't just a constant rate of inflation since it reformed, it'd still be wrong. It'd still be unconstitutional. Uh, so, but so we, we kind of get the problem, right? Is that the, what's available to us now uh, as money, as currency, and we can kind of break down the, the difference in the, in those terms, uh, our financial system. I think every, I, most people I think can feel that, that it's broken. And I think we've kind of made the case for why, um, you know, so why, why Bitcoin as a fix, right? Like if the, if the issue is fiat, why not push for, uh, and somewhere this is going to make Peter Schiff's heart smile. Why not push for a re- like a return to a gold standard? Why not back that money with something physical, um, you know, where it's we get, that did work. We did have that. Why a pivot to something completely different? Like what's the attraction to Bitcoin or or, you know, the larger concept of crypto? Yeah. I mean, if you were Peter Schiff, sitting, you know, sitting here saying that, I would just say, how is your, how's your, your U.S. back to gold dollar working out for you right now? It's like, it's a prima facie answer. Like it, it, it doesn't work because there's a trust component to it. You have to trust the people that right now are perpetuating the system that's not working. We have to then empower those same people to hold to a promise that we're going to hold to a, to a gold standard. And if we're not allowed to audit the Federal Reserve and we're not allowed to audit Fort Knox, then what does that even mean? Like if there, there's there, we're, we're, we're trusting in humans who are inherently fallible. This is the difference. This is the fundamental difference between economic conservatives and economic, let's say, socialists. Socialists believe that we need to trust in other people's altruism, right? Like, let's give power to some people because they're going to make the best decisions for all of society. So let's trust that they're going to make good decisions in a, for us and we'll see how it works out. Uh, conservatives, free market people would say, 
No, we shouldn't trust in anybody. All we should trust in are economic forces, unhuman forces, forces that are beyond human uh, decisions. We don't want to trust in yes or no, this or that. We want to trust in when somebody needs something, they will buy it. That tells the market exactly what the market needs to know. So it's a difference of do we trust in other people doing the right thing? Um, I like to think I'm a pretty good guy. I, I really have a, a, a faithful moral heart where I will do the right thing as many as much as I can. I'm still gonna if I'm if I'm king, I'm still gonna screw up 25% of the time on a good day. Like I, I will mess up. There is there is without a doubt gonna be some broken promises in there. Um, and so why would you predicate a system? on even the best and most noble people in your society, they'll also fail as well. So the only answer, the only answer that makes any sense is basing a system around something that's beyond human action, right? Something that's beyond human, um, what they feel in the moment, right? And so we've seen that throughout history. Free markets thrive. Unfortunately, that that creates a lot of wealth and people say like, okay, well, when wealth gets created, we tend to give power to a few people and then, you know, we end up in in a non-free market and then cartels form people, you know, businesses try to stifle competition by, by, you know, creating monopolies and things like that. Those are the antithesis of free market. So uh, monopolies and cartels are the free market's version of stifling competition. Uh, Socialism is the government's version of stifling competition. But anyways, in both of those cases, like gold doesn't work because it just, it doesn't work. If you, if anybody can point me to a gold backed currency right now, that's functioning, I might reconsider my position, but the fact that it doesn't exist should kind of end the argument right there, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, well, and even then, I mean, you look at when, when coins were actually precious metals, you still saw debasement with less precious metals. You even saw just coin shaving. You didn't even have to debase it, but just, you know, and that gets back to honest scales, right? Because that's how you knew that a coin was worth what it was supposed to be. It was the weight that it was supposed to be. And it was just those little bit of trimmings, just that little bit. How do I know this? Tuttle Twins cartoon. Uh, and uh, so you still, so that's even that, that gold back system isn't infallible, but it's, it would still be preferable to what we're dealing with now, if, if you could do that, if you could lock it down. And I, you know, I feel like to the extent that it's possible with humanity, and, and I think that's part of the genius. And I, I would talk about that a lot on the podcast, um, you know, cause I'm a revolutionary, uh, you know, U S revolution junkie. And I see a lot of genius to the founders and to our founding documents is, you know, where they succeeded, where cons, you know, the Marxist based com- concepts fail is that, they they recognized and banked on human nature rather than trying to ignore it. Rather than planning or counting on altruism, they counted on people to act in their best interest, which we do without fail. I mean, it's it's you know it's like gravity; it's going to happen every single time. And so that's like it, you know even um, you know the different branches of government. The reason that's supposed to work is they they were counting on jealousy. They were counting on the branches to protect their authority. And we've, we've seen, uh, you know, even some of that, um, you know, break down now, but to the extent that they tried to lock down sound money. And it's funny when you get back into it, we talked about, you, you know, you touched on failed central bank banks prior to the federal reserve. If Lin-Manuel has duped you into being a fan of Alexander Hamilton, 
be a fan no more because he was such a proponent for a central bank and for taking on a national debt. Uh, and we would have been much better served listening to Thomas Jefferson, but alas. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know that you could, could do any better of a job of trying to lock down, um, you know, a government issued financial system than what our founders did. And mm. still not very far down the road here. Historically, we find it massively broken. And I think it's more broken than we're feeling right now. You know, I think yeah. there's, I think there's a lot of plaster uh, and duct tape holding things together right now. It's a great way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. So then what, um, where, where does Bitcoin come on, on the scene? Well, so one, one little thing just that, cause what you said, you wax so poetic right there. And that was, that was brilliant. And so hopefully just kind of put a, a ribbon on that with why systems, the only systems that will ever really fully work in perpetuity are systems where you count on people's own self-interest. Like that's, that sounds so like you can say it another way. The only systems that work are where you can count on somebody's greed. If I'm trusting that guy to do the right thing, he may want to do what's in my best interest today, or he may want to do what's in his best interest today. Guess what I can bank on? If I, if we just make the system so that everybody acts based on their own self-interest, then that's a system that we can always care. It's, it's trustless because you know, people will always do the best thing for themselves. So like the analogy I use is I was on an airplane the other day and there's a lot of centralization, like Bitcoin's all about decentralization, but in a small community, some centralization can be okay as long as you have aligned incentives. On that plane, there's almost total centralization of authority and safety. So there's two pilots on the plane, and then there's 150 passengers on the plane. 150 of us have no say in what goes on on this flight, right? Where we're going to, whether we're going to crash or not, whatever. But why do we trust in those two pilots? Why do we allow ourselves to have that much centralization with something as precious as our very life? It's because we trust that that pilot's going to act in his own self-interest to get home to his family, just like I'm going to get home to my family. That system works all the time, aside from, you know, technical errors or, you know, some, some, something that's the exception to the rule, but the rule itself is they will act in their, their own self-interest. And that will benefit me as opposed to whether I hope that pilot cares, whether I get home, I don't care if he cares whether I get home. I just care that he wants to get home. That's a good system. And that's the core of Bitcoin. So, and sorry, let me, let me, what was your question again, as far as why Bitcoin? Well, I, I, I think that? that's why we're, you know, I think we've done a good case of establishing why we're looking for a fix. I think we've done mm -hmm. a, a good job of kind of illustrating the flaws and the other fixes are that are available. Um, and so hopefully at this point in, in the podcast, if, for, for listeners that are still with us, the, that's intrigued them to like, okay, is bit what's real about what I've heard? Like, what's the reality mm -hmm. of Bitcoin, blockchain, crypto, um, and how does it, uh, you know, how does it fill these shortcomings of these other solutions? What, what makes this the solution? And so, but yeah. I think a great place to start from that is like the start of Bitcoin. Like where did this thing come from? How does this even come on the scene? I mean, that's part of the cool part is it came from the cypherpunk community. These people that were very overt 
privacy censorship resistant type of people. So it has censorship resistance built into its core. Um, for anybody that, that wasn't familiar with the, the Canadian trucker rally at the beginning of 2022, um, that's the perfect use case. I actually have a note in my book. I was, I'd written the section, the section on censorship resistance before the Canadian trucker rally. And I went back and just put a little note in there and said, I, I wrote this before the Canadian trucker rally. And my friend said, that the censorship resistance component of money is never really going to be that important. Um, but Canadian trucker free speech was preserved. Um, when government currencies were, were blocked, bank accounts were frozen. Um, things like uh, GoFundMe would not allow people internationally to donate to people protesting and, and using their free speech in Canada. When all else failed, Bitcoin was able to be sent because it's permissionless. I don't have to ask anybody else to send money to Kale. I don't have to ask anybody else to send money to a Canadian trucker. I can just do it. And so that was that Bitcoin facilitated the continuation of the Canadian trucker rally. It would have been shut down much, much earlier and, and protest against mandates would have been shut down much, much earlier. Um, Justin Trudeau, the prime minister of, of Canada came out and said, it's a crime to send money to these people. <clears throat> and uh, guess what? Even in the face of, of punishment, even in the face of doing something wrong, if you'd sent it through a bank account, you would have not only would your your donation would have been blocked, you would have been arrested potentially or fined for having done so. But when it was sent through Bitcoin, it was anonymous and it was there was no way for them to block it. So it, it checked off all the boxes uh, on that front as far as uh, being freedom money, money that people can't F with, basically. Um, and so that's built into the ethos. And that's the, the cypherpunk community. Uh, we, we owe a lot of credit to that, um, you know, the early Internet hackers and things like that. But why does it? So that's why it fixes uh, maybe some of the problems post COVID in a post 2020 COVID world where we're worried about censorship or central bank digital currencies coming online. Um, and you might there might be a, a time in the near future where the government says you can spend $100 today and no more. And, and there's a way for them to enforce that because your money's programmed, your wallet is programmed to not be able to spend any more than that with the with the government's currency. That's going to be a function of that money, whether they use it or not. With Bitcoin, you have total freedom, total independence to spend your money however you see fit with whomever you see fit. Um, that's that's a that's a big that's a big value proposition right there. But what's what's the other problem? Governments are printing currency into oblivion without with they're not asking. We're not we're not being you know. We're not asked to vote on whether the government or you know, the Federal Reserve should print more currency. Now, sorry, I it, it sounds confusing because sometimes we say, oh, the government's printing more money or we say the Federal Reserve's printing more money. The reason why we say that and people will say that in general is the government's actually spending more money. And so they have the right to spend more money to promise more people, you know, social programs or we're going to send more money to Ukraine. And then there's this process through which the Federal Reserve will then create that money. So the Federal Reserve can choose to do that on their own. The government can also choose to spend money in which they'll sell government bonds to the Federal Reserve. Um, and then that's how they get cash. So, so when we say, oh, the government's printing money, it's not because we're forgetting that the Federal Reserve is a private entity. It's that they're, they both kind of have this unchecked power. So it's not just like one crazy person at the wheel printing money into oblivion. There's two crazy people at the wheel with their own motives 
creating more money or, or, or calling for more money to be put in, right. into creation. Um, but that money, we have no idea. We have no idea how much currency is, is in circulation. So if you have say a hundred thousand dollars in your, in your retirement account, you don't know how much of the slice of the pie of all the currency. So if we're looking at a pie chart of all the currency in the world. You don't know what your relative percentage is of all the, the money in the game. Now, imagine this, if you were playing a game of Monopoly and you have a thousand dollars, you know exactly what percentage of the, the currency you have in that game, because there's a fixed supply of money. A game is only fun and it only makes sense to play when it has rules. In Monopoly, it's this dumb little game that we play, but even that game is as inconsequential as it is, that game would be made pointless if you did not know how much currency was in was in circulation. That's a game. We're talking about people's lives and we don't know how much money is in circulation. So that's the other value proposition of Bitcoin. There's only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoins in the world. It's infinitely divisible. So you can break it down into whatever you need to spend it on. You don't need to spend a whole Bitcoin at a time. People can buy little bits of Bitcoin at a time. But we know that there's only about 19 million in the world today. There's only ever going to be 21 million and so you know with mathematical certainty how much of the slice of the pie you have. It's it's much more like playing a fair game like Monopoly than playing some game where you're playing with a five-year-old and they're just making up the rules as they go. That game wouldn't be fun for anybody and it wouldn't be fair for anybody to change the rules as you go. So Bitcoin is a rules-based game. Um, and I would much rather play a rules-based game than a, than a game without rules where they, they change without whether I know them or not. Yeah. So it, it, to me, that's the big value proposition. So if, if it's, you know, this uh, dynamic duo of, of the fed and, and our government uh, creating dollar bills, who, who's making Bitcoin? Um, there is a mathematical algorithm that produces new Bitcoin every day. And so um, every 10 minutes, a few more Bitcoin get created and it's by this thing called SHA-256. It's this brilliant um, cryptographic algorithm that says that about every 10 minutes, we can get into why 10 minutes and any of the technical details you guys want to get into, we'll, we'll explain them as, as layman as possible. I'm Because I need to explain them that way. I, I, you know, I'm not Mr. Mathematician over here. But every 10 minutes, this algorithm produces 10 new Bitcoin. And so we know that and even um Milton Friedman talks about this uh, you know a, a prominent uh, economist said a fair monetary system isn't a monetary system where the supply never increases it's just a monetary system where we know exactly how much it's increasing by at any given time and so with bitcoin we know every 10 minutes a certain amount of bitcoin gets created so i could tell you one year from now 100 years from now 1000 years from now exactly how much Bitcoin is going to be in, you know, in existence at any given time. And so you can depend on that, right? Like you can, you can kind of forecast out that and it, it's just, it's more fair and transparent. So there's nobody creating it. Um, it's just mathematics generating this stuff. And if you want to get those coins, those new coins that come into creation, you can do something called Bitcoin mining. Um, so how do you, it begs the question, how do you run a decentralized system where nobody's in control of it, but you still need transactions that need to be processed? So if we look at Visa and MasterCard, 
they will process your transaction, but they will do that for the privilege of you giving them money and them being the middleman. It's a system that's that's worked up to this point and we needed to have it. But with Bitcoin, there's no middleman. There's just these people These uh, that if you want, you can turn your computer onto the Bitcoin uh, core code. You can run a node and you can mine for Bitcoin. Essentially what you're doing is every 10 minutes, there's a it's like a giant game of pick a number between one and 10, but it's this really, really, really massive number that whichever computer in the world is the first one to guess that number. And that's what's being generated every 10 minutes. Then you have the privilege to put all of the transactions of the last 10 minutes on the next block. And by doing so you get rewarded today, you get rewarded six uh, and a quarter Bitcoin for doing that. Now, it's very difficult. That number's so massive. It's like playing the lottery. Every 10 minutes, there's like the lottery that goes on. All these computers are trying to guess this number. The reason why that's such a brilliant system is because if you were, if you wanted to attack, if you wanted to take over the Bitcoin network, you would have to be able to guess this number faster than anybody else. So you would have to play by the rules. If you wanted to take over the Bitcoin network, you would have to have so much guessing power that it can outpower all of the computers on the Bitcoin network today. And so just to put in perspective how complex this number is, I have a Bitcoin miner. It's kind of like a tchotchke type of thing. It's out in my garage. I don't ever expect to win any Bitcoin with this. Um, but it guesses 100 billion numbers per second. And that machine in my garage is probably never going to win the Bitcoin mining block for any 10 minute period. There's so much computing power going on in the world right now, guessing random numbers at any given moment, that that means that it's, it's a race where everybody has this, they, they all start at the same starting point every 10 minutes. And when the blockchain says go, everybody gets to run the race by the same rules. Now you might have a faster race car because you have more computers or whatever, but everybody's playing by the exact same rules. And so it's a fair rules, rules-based system that has no backdoor code that anybody can hack because the only way that you get to do that block, the only way that you get to get those coins is if you guess that number before anybody else. The only way you can guess a random number is by proof of work, guessing as many numbers, doing as much math as you can to guess this number as fast as you possibly can. So nobody has an advantage other than if they're paying more electricity for more computers, but then they have a cost associated with it. And that's also fair. Let me uh, let me back you up and and dig into some of this a little bit. Uh, so you, you know you're talking about the coins being generated at a at a set pace on a regular schedule by an algorithm. So uh, algorithm gets thrown around a ton now, right? We hear it in the context of social media and mm-hmm. but even like um, anybody who's ever tried to figure out solving a Rubik's cube, the actual processes you're using those are algorithms. But mm-hmm. when we use them in this context, uh, my, you know, I'm right there with you as an absolute layman's understanding. What we're talking about is set mathematics uh, in the form of computer code. So it's it's mathematics written into code. Who wrote mm-hmm. the code? That's a good question. So there's a pseudonymous person named Satoshi Nakamoto that wrote the Bitcoin white paper that wrote the Bitcoin code. Um, now, we don't know who that is. We don't know if it's a group of people. We don't know if it's a man, woman. We don't know if his actual name was Satoshi. The cool part is it does not matter. It's completely irrelevant because what Satoshi gave us was open source code. And it's it's most likely that Satoshi never revealed their identity. 
Um, and he actually says this in some of his email forms and stuff like that is, is um, so it's not really an assumption, but if Satoshi were say you, for example, <laughs> Bitcoin would be judged not just on its merits for what it can do, but it would be judged on whatever personal successes or failures you have as an individual. Everybody has personal failures somewhere along the road. And so Bitcoin, something that's mathematically sound and has merit shouldn't be judged off of off of the individual that created it i mean imagine if if trump created bitcoin like would anybody you know like that'd be a very contentious thing right like it so the, the personality it would be a personality personality driven thing rather than oh this this mathematic thing works it just works so yeah. that's that's what it should be based on so <laughs> not to rabbit trail yeah. too much but it feels like yeah, it's too much rabbit like trail. trump creating his own crypto almost seems inevitable which I think he's done. <laughs> he's done some with NFTs, which I don't. Unless I we get through some. all the important stuff, I don't. Like, because we could get totally sucked in NFTs too. But, um, so I, that that pony for me has always, like, that's that's always been a bug to me. But you make a great case in the book for it being a, a feature. But it's and you might you know kind of living in this space. I can't remember this guy's name. You'll probably be familiar with him. There's this short old dude, always in three-piece pinstripe suit, striped suits that you see all over social media. Incredibly foul mouth. I'm sure he's very, very wealthy. He's always yelling at somebody and dropping f bombs and telling somebody why they're not rich and successful too. But I've seen these clips of this dude, and you might know who he is. Um, you know, talking about if you knew who was behind Bitcoin. Yeah, I know. And if you knew, of course, he's not willing to to tell you. But if you knew. You wouldn't touch it with a ten foot pole, and I think at some point he he does say in some interviews like, "Oh, it's it's Russia," but it's, uh, you know, where does your confidence come from in uh, since the the source code since the the code is open source since the algorithm is open source, um, you you see no potential, no for room for anybody missing anything, any kind of backdoor, anything nefarious in this. Mm. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, it's a very simple program. It's not. It's it's far less complicated than than Facebook's code or or any kind of like big relevant apps. Code is is much more complicated than Bitcoin. There's so many high profile wealthy people that store their value in Bitcoin and have had their team of engineers audit the code for themselves. Like, like Michael Saylor, who's the most prominent Bitcoiner in the world. He has like 150,000 Bitcoin. He, he owns a company called MicroStrategy. Before he ever, even if philosophically he agreed with Bitcoin, um, these guys have teams of guys that audit this code. And what comes back time and time again is that this code is very simple. Um, and it's, it's almost unsophisticated in a way. And that's, that's by design. It's because there's, there's no backdoors. There's literally no backdoors written into it. Um, and it's, it's a fair rules-based thing. There's not a master key somewhere that unlocks everybody's wallet. It's a race to find that, that, to guess that magic number every 10 minutes. And you only, you only get the privilege of getting a few Bitcoin from the network if you win that race for that particular 10 minutes um, outside of that, there's just, there's, there's nothing there. It's, it's open source. Everybody audits it. It's the most audited network of all time. It audits itself every 10 minutes. Anybody that runs a node audits the code. So if you say, and I think this is where people get really caught up is maybe, okay, maybe the Bitcoin source code, People have looked at it and it's fine, but how do you know somebody hasn't introduced a bug to it? I think that's where people really got caught up or get caught up. This is the cool part is that 
it's decentralized and that's a security measure. So imagine there's 10 people sitting around running the Bitcoin source code. Well, if if an 11th person comes along and they have a version of the Bitcoin source code that also has a line written into it that says, give me all the money, every 10 minutes, all of the computers audit all of the other computers on the network. And if that code, if this new node, this 11th person, if when everybody else audits their, their code, if there's anything different about it, their their version of it will be completely disregarded by the rest of the network. So it's a self-cleaning, self-perpetuating system that will that will find any bad actors any 10 minutes that a bad actor gets introduced. Um, and so bad actors have tried to introduce code to the Bitcoin network before, and it's just a really expensive thing for them to perpetually fail on. Um, and yeah, it, there's just really not room for that to happen. It's it's far too secure. It's actually, it's emphatically the most secure computing network that's ever existed in the world. It's far more secure than the NSA database um, because of its decentralization. Um, it's it's like hiding it's like hiding in broad daylight. Like there's this there's this power that comes. It's not we're not relying on some sophisticated firewall. And if that firewall breaks down, then Bitcoin's compromised. It's no the security of Bitcoin comes from the fact that we all see the code. And if at any point some new guy comes to the party with a different version, we kick him out of the party. And that's that's essentially how it works. Um, I want to break down some of the terminology. Like when you're talking about mining and, and nodes, is, is a node just in, any computer uh, state essentially that's that's participating in this process, that's that's doing the mining and then potentially contributing to, you know, compiling the block and contributing that and, and running these checks against the rest of the system? It, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there's you can have a node or you can have a miner. Um, uh, um, so, what a node is, it can be just my my PC. Like, uh, if you want to be a miner, you need a special type of computer that can guess those numbers really fast. And when I say guess those numbers really fast, what's happening is you do a, a mathematical function and algorithm, like you pointed out early earlier. And every time you do that mathematical function it generates a number and it's like, was that number we generated correct? Yes or no. That's how the guessing part works. So you need a really powerful computer to be able to do that trillions of times per second. Our home computers and our cell phones don't do that very efficiently. But if you do have a home computer or a cell phone, you can run a Bitcoin node. What a Bitcoin node is, it's just a history of the transaction. So you're not trying to guess the numbers very fastly. You're not trying to mine the Bitcoin. What you're doing is you're saying, okay, here's the source code. I'm running the source code on my computer. And I'm one of the people that's auditing to see if there's any bad actors coming online. And so you're participating in the security of Bitcoin to some degree. Um, and then mining is participating in the, in the other side of the security. So you're basically, as a node, you're using your PC to uh, be a validator of the rules. Every 10 minutes, you're saying, yep, the rules were kept. Yep, the rules were kept. It's like having somebody like the banker in Monopoly saying every round, every time somebody rolls, okay, where's everybody's money at? Did anybody make their own money and like introduce it into the game? Nope. Okay, they're, they're just enforcing the rules. And so that's all that a node is doing at any given time. What's the, I mean, the, the incentive on the mining side is, is fairly obvious. What, what's the incentive to operate a node? So a node, you're the, the, 
you have the ability, um, like, so if I were to send you Bitcoin right now, I would be using a wallet that is, um, it's somebody else's node that I'm running that transaction through. Now they don't have the ability to stop my payment because if their node says no, like we don't want, I mean, they wouldn't know I'm sending it, but my payment would just route through another Bitcoin node that would allow that. There's thousands or millions of nodes all over the world. And so my payment will just take a route through various nodes to get to you. Um, now, if I don't want to have to rely on other people's nodes, even though that system works and it's it's trustless and I don't have to rely on any one person, I'm relying on hundreds of thousands of people to process my payment. But if I don't even want to rely on that, I can just create my own node then I can send money, my Bitcoin to whoever I want at any time without trusting even in the network. I now have my own payment provider. I'm essentially opening up my own Visa and MasterCard to be able to send and route payments myself. So you're taking a little bit more responsibility uh, for basically it's it's like an extra degree of liberty, right? You're 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 not you're you're ratcheting up your ability to send money permissionlessly even further than it was before. So the so then the the incentive to go back to my original question then is just that you're contributing maybe to both the efficiency but certainly the security of the system at large that you're wanting to participate in. Yeah, my my selfish motive is I now have full autonomy over being able to send Bitcoin to anyone I want. That's the benefit to me. There's literally, I have my own debt. My destiny is in my own hands. I can send money to whoever I want because I run the note. I can say where my money goes or not. The benefit to the network is that by running that node, by me having the privilege to send Bitcoin to whoever I want, I'm now for the, for everybody else on the network, I'm validating the rules. I'm participating in upkeeping the rules. So by me doing something selfish, I'm doing something good for the network. Gotcha. So uh, the the actual creation of coins, though, cre- coins come into existence through the, through the mining process. So uh, what is it that the the mining units are doing? Because it's they're not physically doing the creation. They're not creating the coin because that's um, that's just the reward. That's just a byproduct. Mm-hmm. So what mm-hmm. is the the work that the mining is doing? I mean, yeah, it's one of those things that it takes a few times of hearing it maybe to to wrap one's head around it, but you're literally, they're just racing to guess the right number in that 10 minute. It's it's like a lottery in reverse. So in, in a lottery, you get your lottery tickets, you essentially get all of your guesses for what, you know, say the lottery is going to be on Friday from Monday to Thursday, you buy all of your lottery tickets, which are essentially a bunch of different guesses for what the number on Friday is going to be, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, in Bitcoin mining, at the beginning of the 10 minutes, the algorithm picks a number. It's called the nonce. And now when the network says go, all those computers are firing off guesses to race to to guess that one number as fast as they possibly can. And so... If you sit back and think about that, like it doesn't sound like that's that like a very sophisticated system. And it's it's not. But the brilliance of it is that the only way you hack the system is by trying to guess the number as fast as possible. But if you if you do that, like if to, to, to give yourself an advantage, it's game theory to give yourself an advantage to guess the number as fast as possible. You need to supply more computers to the network. And when you supply more computers in the network, then other people 
your competitors will also supply more computers to the network to try and beat you out in this race. And so now there's more computers on the network trying to guess this number and it, it continues to decentralize the process. And so as opposed to whoever has the best hacker that can break down a firewall and then get this, you know, <laughs> they can drill into the vault and get everybody's coins. The only thing that you have access to by mining is the next block reward, the next six and a quarter Bitcoin. Um, but that's only if you win that 10 minute race to do that. Um, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where it, it, it sounds sim so simple that it's like that, that doesn't seem to describe everything somebody's wanting to ask, but it really, that's, yeah. that's what's happening. A, a, a fair game of chance of guessing the numbers as fast as you can. Yeah. Um, it's not a game of chance. I mean, you, you, there, there's, there's some luck, but, but racing to find that number yeah. is, is, uh, is a fair game. Well, yeah. well what I'm, what I'm trying to, there, there's a few things I, I kind of just want to make sure uh, that I understand and in, in hopes of, of making sure the listeners understands it's like, because the, the component we haven't really hit on, but we're, you know, we're kind of talking about in pieces is the, the blockchain that's underlying string of, of data. And so it's, you know, we're, we're kind of talking about this, this process, you know, what you compared to Visa, MasterCard, the credit card systems where they're providing this processing power and they're taking care of the transactions, but they're taking their pound of flesh to do it. So mm -hmm. is it, is it the miners that are taking on the weight of that? Or is that where the data is being compiled to add? Well, I, we should probably kind of at least give an overview of what the blockchain is because there's bigger implications there beyond what we're talking about with bitcoin the, the currency or money um, but then kind of is it is it nodes or minor like who's doing that that work on the back end that's a really good question so it's a very pointed question so the miner is racing to win that thing so that they can produce the next block all the miner does is produce the next block. Then they pass that information along to the nodes. The nodes are the ones that store the history of those blocks. So this 10 minutes now gets chained to the last 10 minutes, and that's what the blockchain is. And so the node is keeping that record like, hey, I'm a node. I have the history of all the blocks ever linked to one, you know, 10 minutes by 10 minutes by 10 minutes, all the way back to 2009. And so the nodes are the ones that are housing that information. And so when you say, when you say blocks, that's essentially the ledger, right? Like it's, you know, in, in my head, because I'm a spreadsheet junkie, it's a fancy spreadsheet. You're adding a line yeah. to your spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. It's just, everybody's got a copy of the spreadsheet and it's updated in real time for everybody. So those blocks, that's just all of the transactions that occurred within those 10 minutes on the network. Precisely. That's okay. exactly what it is. Yep. Um, and so that would include then the creation of coins that go with that block. So that's how you have mm -hmm. an accounting that there's more in the supply and then any transactions are, are moving around of any coins. Exactly. Spot so on. I'm going to ask what I know is a silly, stupid question, but I, <laughs> there are no stupid questions. But I'm just sure somebody's asking this, like, what is a Bitcoin? Like, I can hold a dollar, right? What is a Bitcoin? I, I, I'm, I'm at, it's a setup for a follow-on question, but what is a Bitcoin? I mean, the, the really unsexy answer is it's just an accounting input that says you have this unit of value. That, that's as simple as it is. Um, now you can get into these kind of more philosophical things that it's a, it's a digital a digital record of something that has immutability. And that's where I would suggest like somebody needs to dive into the book because you need to walk through this and this perhaps hours of yeah. explanation <laughs> for the philosophical answer of why that, why that simple answer actually makes a lot of sense. But if I have, if there's a record somewhere 
on this blockchain, for example, that says I have this unit of account or I have this unit, this one Bitcoin, it gives me privilege and access to a network that is 100% accurate. It's very auditable. It's unchangeable. Nobody can stop it. Nobody can censor it. So by having this coin, you have privileges that come along with it. And that's this ability to send it to you know the, all the, the tenants of Bitcoin. This I, I have a unit of something that's scarce. I have a unit of something that um, can't be messed with. So that's essentially what you have. But at its most fundamental level, yes, it's just a ledger entry that says Brian has has this thing in his possession, but I'm not holding it. What I do hold is I do hold a secret though. I have a 12 word passphrase, a 12 word seed phrase. That's what gives me access to that thing. Now, the only person that has access to that passphrase is me or anybody that I choose to share it with. So if that's my wife or if that's my, you know, my kids or whatever it happens to be. Um, and so it's something that I can access that nobody else can access until I turn over ownership of that thing. Now, it makes that process sound really complicated. It's not. It's it's as easy as sending a Venmo payment, but that's fundamentally what's happening is that I'm able to s- store value through having a secret. So, um okay, that that all, that all tracks. That that makes sense. But so there's only going to be 21 million bitcoins in circulation. Uh, well, uh, man, it's it's hard to pick which branch I want to go off uh, here. So, says who? Let's let's do that real quick. Says who? Why were there? How can there only ever be twenty one million of these? And the good thing is we like we should judge people for not asking these questions. These are the questions that like if you're coming to Bitcoin, we have to ask these questions because if not, we're just repeating the old system of I trust it because they said so kind right. of thing. But the code itself, um, it has. Stop using this word algorithmic, but part of the Bitcoin code says that over time that supply will be diminished and that ends in a finite cap of 21 million. So it's programmed into the rules of the game. Just like in Monopoly, if you play Monopoly for long enough, the rules of the game will generate an ultimate winner of the game. And you know, the the all the property, all the money goes to a person. If you if you play that thing out to its logical conclusion, that's what happens with Bitcoin. If you follow these rules, which you really don't have, if you're participating in Bitcoin, you don't have any choice but to follow these rules because just like two plus two equals four, it doesn't matter how many times I run two plus two equals four, I cannot expect a different answer. And so if you run the Bitcoin mathematics for long enough, you're going to end with a supply of 21 million. So, you know, this all being based on, we're saying algorithm, you could... um... Uh, you know, you could, that would be interchangeable really with the underlying pro you could say program. If people are more familiar with that terminology, but like code can be, can be changed. And so you've addressed some with the fact that the code lives on all the nodes and they're all checking against each other all the time. And so that, that's kind of the fail safe there. And you'd have to know where all the nodes were and who had all of them to even begin to think about trying to hack this thing um, and introduce bad code. But is there no method by which the algorithm can be changed at all? You could have complete consensus, um, like a super majority of consensus. Now, the cool thing is we actually have historical precedent for this. Bitcoin has been, people have tried to implement changes in Bitcoin um, unsuccessfully. And then there's been some changes that were necessary upgrades for the network that everybody agreed on. 
um, that remained part of the ethos of, of the Bitcoin code. Um, and so, yeah, you could have a supermajority consensus uh, that, that changes something if there was a necessary upgrade or theoretically a bug or something like that. You, you could, you just need all of the nodes to agree to that. Now, here's the cool thing. Say if there's like a hundred nodes in the world that say, no, we disagree with that. We fundamentally disagree with that. What you have is, is in technology, they call this a fork. It's a hard fork. The, the open source code means it's like, it's like back to the future when there's like two timelines now. There's, there's the original Bitcoin and then there's this new version of Bitcoin. So in a free market, you have the choice to deal with either one of those things. The free market will decide, well, these guys decided to stay with the old code. These guys decided to go with the new code. Now, people have heard that there's like 20,000 different cryptocurrencies in the world. All 20,000 of those are forks of Bitcoin. Those are groups of people that copied Bitcoin's code and said, we're going to do something to improve it, right? We're going to make smart contracts on it. We're going to do, this is going to be faster or whatever. But the reason those things those things diverge on the timeline, um, groups of people will follow that new timeline, but then the people that hold to the Bitcoin ethos will continue to run the old code. They have the freedom to run the old code. So there will always be newer versions of Bitcoin coming along, just like you can copy and paste songs. But the one that will have the most value is going to be the one where there's the most network effect, the most economic activity. So if people say Bitcoin won, is where that's the unit of account that I will take for my business, or that's the unit of account I'm going to take to, or I'm going to spend to buy my beef or whatever it happens to be. That's where people will place their value. It's a total free market form of money. So yes, copies of Bitcoin have been introduced into the code and, and some people follow that, that trail. Um, but for those of us that are Bitcoin maximalists, we stay on the original code of Bitcoin. Now we could all agree together that, you know what? We do need a new version that 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 does something different because there was this unforeseen consequence. Um, but that would take a lot of 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 a lot of consensus, and, and I, it'd be hard with as as decentralized as Bitcoin is. It'd be hard to see something that would cause that level of consensus. But perhaps it's out there. Um, so it theoretically can be changed, but pragmatically, probably won't. So, uh, you know, to, to simplify it some, you're saying consensus, 51% of nodes uh, is yeah. what you would need to make that change. But still then somebody in the 49 could decide, like you said, like that group of 100, no, we're, we're not going to make that change. We're going to stick this route. And yeah. they could still part ways. Yep. Uh, you always have the ability to part ways. That's like a business partnership that, that, that went south. But we're still running things because we yeah. find this set of rules to be of value, we're going to continue to operate by those rules. So, like, um, why should we trust the network more than we would trust the government in the sense of why should I trust the network not to increase the cap to 22 million, 50 million, any more than I should trust the government not to go, uh, you know what, we really need to print more of these. We really don't have time to come up with the gold. So, never mind, just trust us. It's a really good question. Um, it comes back to what we talked about earlier is aligned incentives. Um, Bitcoin miners, if they did that, if Bitcoin node operators decided that we were going to change the code, they, you know, they got enough of a consensus to do that. Again, they're only changing one, one timeline of Bitcoin to do that. So in a free market, 
the people that like the scarcity of Bitcoin will continue to use the version of Bitcoin that is scarce, right? And so the free market will probably adapt to that. Um, but uh, if anybody that decides we're going to go with a 25 million or a 30 million or a hundred million uh, Bitcoin copy of Bitcoin, you know, uh, version of Bitcoin called Bitcoin 2.0, it, it acts against the very nature of what made their Bitcoin valuable in the first place. If their Bitcoins are worth a hundred thousand per coin at that point, the, the thinking is they're going to print more because if I print double now, instead of having one Bitcoin worth a hundred thousand, I have two Bitcoins that are totally worth 200,000. That's the line of thinking. But what's going to actually happen in reality is they're going to double the supply. They're going to give themselves two Bitcoin instead of one, but it's going to go down by more than 50%. So their $100,000 Bitcoin is going to be worth $10,000 now. So yes, they have two of them, but instead of having $100,000 of buying power, they have $10,000 or $20,000 of buying power. That's that's the economic thing that would most likely happen because the highest value proposition of Bitcoin is scarcity. So it would be going against the very thing that's providing it value. There's going to be groups of people. That's that's what has happened. That's why crypto exists is because people are trying to do that. They're trying to create versions of the blockchain where they can create unlimited coins. So we're actually seeing that happen in real time. And those things fail one by one by one. Like there's all of the cryptos that exist right now didn't exist five years ago, seven years ago, except for very few of them. The reason is because many of these do this, they have a life cycle, they die after four years, and then a new sleuth of of them pop up because they try it again. I think at some point, society is going to learn that these are not viable options, um, but we, we've seen this play out and, and it doesn't work out for the people that try to create a unlimited supply version of Bitcoin. Right. And so, I, you know, I think you made this case in the book. It's, you know, based on that, you, you can actually be more reasonably sure of the continued scarcity of Bitcoin than you can even of, say, a precious metal, gold, platinum. Because as we, one of our favorite topics here on the podcast is space, rockets, space exploration, totally geek out on all that stuff. And we're very, very close to this whole new economy of space. And the mm -hmm. idea of, bringing resource into our economy from outside of what's terrestrially available is becoming a reality very quickly. And, uh, you know, it's one asteroid full of gold and that market is shot. Um, you know, and it's, and that stays true for, you know, we don't know particularly what resources that'll start with, with the lunar economy. I mean, we, we will be mining and return, returning resources from the moon sooner rather than later. Uh, and, you know, we don't know enough from the few trips there yet as far as what all that's going to look like. But that economy will just continue to grow, whereas Bitcoin is locked in at that $21 million and they're disincentivized. The, the network is disincentivized from expanding that number. Yeah. Where rather or not, you know, if you're De beer and you don't want there to be more diamonds and you're just, you know, stuffing them all in your mattress, you don't, you, nobody can control whether or not more gold ultimately enters into the economy. And even terrestrially, yeah. you could find a big vein somewhere. Like we find new stuff all the time. We think we have it all figured out and it's new oil de deposits and new this and new that. And turns out we didn't know jack squat to begin with. So yeah. uh, I heard somebody make the point once of, you know, based just, just surely on the number of millionaires there are in the world versus the number of Bitcoins that will ultimately be available that... At, at a minimum, if you're holding a Bitcoin, it's going to be worth more than a million dollars because millionaires outnumber the number of Bitcoins 
that will be available. Um, how does that not make it impossible? Like, uh, you know, you sell me by the end between reading the book and the end of this, I'm like, I'm in, let's get some Bitcoin, but I'm not, obviously Bitcoin's not sitting at that that million dollar or higher price point (laughs) just yet. But the the price to to entry on a full Bitcoin is, is still, Mm -hmm. you know, relatively high right now. So how, how do I get in? How do I play? I think it's it's really good to kind of reformulate how we think about Bitcoin. Um, for those that don't know in the audience, that, that the smallest unit of Bitcoin, so just like how the U.S. dollar has the cent, 0.01, a Bitcoin has point and then eight decimal points and then a one. So it's very, very divisible. That's one of the big arguments that, that Bitcoiners make over gold is that you know, gold's not very divisible, but Bitcoin is infinitely divisible. If we needed to make it more divisible, you could make it divisible. You can make anything divisible down to more decimal places. But the smallest unit of Bitcoin is called the SAT. And that's less than one penny right now. And that is the the kind of the, the rallying cry you hear from the Bitcoin community right now is to stop thinking about holding an entire coin. That's that's not what people are going to transact in is entire coins. You, like you said, you already don't transact in entire coins unless you're buying a vehicle or some, you know, property or something like that. Spend you acquire bitcoins in sats, stack sats. Like that's dollar cost averaging in the same way that people uh, invest in their retirement account. They dollar cost average. People aren't familiar with that term, but they're doing it. Out of every paycheck, you have X amount of money go into uh, an ETF or a, or a retirement account or an IRA or whatever it happens to be. You're you're buying in monthly to the stock market, and guess what happens over time? You get little bits and pieces, but then that grows, and then you compound. You know how much you invested, you compound how much interest you've earned, and over time that generates wealth. That's the same thing with stacking SaaS dollar cost average. Don't go out and buy ten thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin tomorrow. Buy $10 a week for the rest of your life. <laughs> like it's going to be so much more palatable. And you're going to Bitcoin right now, especially until it until it reaches like a worldwide economic demand, it's going to have periods of high volatility. And so instead of trying to time the market and like, am I at the top of the market, the bottom of the market? If you're just buying weekly, you're going to buy high sometimes, you're going to buy low sometimes. But over the arc of Bitcoin's life and over the arc of your investing cycle, you're going to buy at a really good average price. Anybody that started buying Bitcoin at any amount, say you bought $100 a month, you bought $50 a month, whatever, since the peak, if you were buying at 69,000 two years ago and you bought that same amount every month, since then, you would be at something like a 30% profit right now, even if you started buying at the peak of the market. But if you had bought $1,000 worth of Bitcoin at the peak of the market, you'd be down about 50% right now. We're about 50% off of the all-time highs of Bitcoin. So if you just YOLO'd in and bought everything at once, you'd be down a substantial amount. If you took a more disciplined approach and made it part of your monthly... I mean, you won't notice $10 a week coming out of your bank. You can You can go to these online exchanges... And just set it up for automatic buys. You don't have to do any of this stuff manually. You won't even notice ten dollars coming out of your account, but you're going to be participating in buying uh, life-transforming wealth. I'm going to grab my phone real quick because I think I, I forget what. Um, I'll have to pull it up real quick. But like, uh, like how much ten dollars is? If, if you think in terms of Sats here, ten dollars is. Oops, I pulled up the wrong thing. Sorry, this is great for airtime right here when I'm just like. Okay, so you can buy 10,000 sats for $3 right now. So 
you're buying something like 35, 40,000 sats for every $10 you spend. That's a much more satisfying thing to think about. I bought, I just bought 40,000 units of this currency rather than I bought zero, zero, you know, 0.00001 Bitcoin. Don't think of it like that because that's not what things are going to be bought and sold in. I buy, I spend money, I spend Bitcoin every single day. I buy things online. I use it for marketing. I use it. I, all of our food in our house, all of our meat in our house is bought with Bitcoin. When I buy things for, I don't, I don't buy, I don't use entire Bitcoin. I use sats. So just like you want to accrue dollars right now, accrue sats. And that's very, very easy to do. So again, man, there's so many routes I want to go down with so many things, but one, I, I want to interject, you know, I had some listener questions come in and, and this is something you hit on just now. This actually came from one of my, uh, my regular guests here on the podcast. It, it, the way he worded it was explain how any blockchain currency is any more stable than a, a national, you know, a governmental issued currency, given its significant vulnerability to speculation. So it's one, maybe kind of ad addressing his question, but I think that leads further to, as you're talking about spending it every day, uh, like I, I have a hard time wrapping my head around. And so I'm assuming there's at least some portion of listeners in the same place as is the goal for this to be currency is the goal for, uh, for me to be transacting with this thing daily, or mm -hmm. is this a commodity? Is this an investment? And not that those need to be mutually exclusive, but it's like knowing where the price point is now, which I don't track it daily. And I'm sure there's some that do it's, it's somewhere around $30,000 a coin right now. Right. Um, yeah down from, you know, there was a crazy spike. Well, crazy relative, I guess, up to 60. And yeah. so, um, but it's like knowing that um, there's only ever going to be 21 million um, and, uh, you know, assuming the system works and we're not all missing something it doesn't disappear, it doesn't go to zero. Those sats you're spending now are going to be infinitely more valuable somewhere down the road. So uh, you don't, does that not create any hesitation in spending those for just kind of mundane daily transactions for you? So I, I know there's three or four questions there. No, those, and those are all good questions. And, and it's funny, you ask a few questions, but they really do get at the heart of the same issue. So I'll try to answer them all as best as possible. First of all, to his question about blockchain and it being speculative, the, yeah, the Bitcoin economy and the crypto economy is very, is very speculative still. I mean, it's, it's not immune to investors saying, oh, we're going to put a bunch of money in this. And so the price is going to go up and then people panic and then the price goes down. It's, it's value isn't fully derived from the, the reasons why I like Bitcoin for its censorship resistance and its scarcity. It's, it's really because there's lots of big institutions speculating on it. But look back at, at Amazon stock in its early days. Amazon stock was highly valuable. It had three or four times where it fell off by 80 to 90%. And almost everybody, the early founders, none of the early founders held Amazon stock all the way through, except for Jeff Bezos and his parents. The people that were willing to withstand that, vol that volatility are sending rockets to outer space right now for fun. Like that, that's the benefit that they got. They're, they're operating at a much higher level for us because they were willing to withstand volatility. Now, volatility is not proof that Bitcoin's going to be the future, but I'm just saying it's not proof that it's not going to be the future. Um, and so the reason why I would say, I, uh, there's a bunch of reasons why I think that Bitcoin's going to be the future, but everything's going digital. Everything. There's not one component of our life that won't have a digital alternative. You might prefer the analog alternative still, but there's always going to be a digital option. And digital options are always much bigger, more efficient, and the market cap of them gets much bigger. Um, Bitcoin represents humanity's first ever digital currency. Um, and it's the it's the one that it's the only currency ever in history that isn't 
issued by government. It, it checks off all these boxes for um, why it's going to matter for the future of humanity. Um, and then as far as, um, man, there's a few questions you had there. Um, I feel like I'm missing one of them. Um, what was the last part? Well, you remember just, what the last part? You know, asking, you, you know, why don't you have, knowing that it's going to be so scarce, go. knowing that, uh, you know, presumably we're at the tip of the iceberg in, in the value, like that value prospect only stands to climb, um, you know, doesn't that give you hesitation in using it as a currency, using it for these mundane daily transactions, um, knowing that you're getting just a fraction of the ultimate potential value of that yeah. thing down the road. So yeah, that perfect. That's exactly where I was trying to take that and then just brain farted. Um, but yeah, so I, there's, there's actually debates about this in the Bitcoin community. There's this term called hodl, you know, it's like, you just hold, hold your Bitcoin, hold on for dear life. Um, and, and that is in a free market, people can do that with their money. Um, they're treating it purely as an investment, purely as, as maybe perhaps speculation or, or whatever. I don't know what the, the rationale for that. For me, I think it's good sound money. I want to stimulate that economy as much as possible. I think it's in my own best interest to spend Bitcoin, even though that Bitcoin's going to go up in value. I think it's in my own best interest to stimulate that economy because the other Bitcoin that, that I do hold on to is going to go up in value because I'm investing in it right now. Like uh, an entrepreneur, you would never tell him, why Why did you just invest $100,000 into that business? Like, you know, the reason why he did it, he invested $100,000 because he hopes to make a higher return even though he's losing 100,000 right now, he hopes to make a million dollars down the road. I think I'm for me and people like me, we see that as part of it's our investment in the infrastructure of that circular economy. I also from a freedom angle, I and and my my role as the head of marketing for Orange Pill app is is a it's a social network for bitcoiners. We're creating the circular economy economy of bitcoin. So if CBDCs come along and the government says you can't spend money on uh organic beef right now. Well, guess what? If you know a rancher, which we have ranchers in our app that will sell you beef for Bitcoin, all of a sudden the value prospect of that social connection and that circular economy is very, very high. Right. And so um, I'm willing to invest a little bit in that, but I really don't invest that much. I, I spend my Bitcoin, but I stack and replace. <laughs> I, I, I buy that Bitcoin back a week later or whatever, because I'm, I'm stacking sats, like I said before. So yes, some of my budget goes to buying and holding Bitcoin for the long term. And so you can look at that as an investment. I don't look at it as an, at it as an investment as I do a stock. A stock, something I'm going to buy and hold. I'm just investing in a better form of money that, yes, I'm going to, it's going to appreciate, but I really look at it through not the dollar value it has, but how much more stuff it can buy me tomorrow versus it can buy me today. When I bought my first Bitcoin, uh, it was for $250 a coin. I could buy about, uh, I could buy my family's groceries for the week for what I spent on that. Today, I could buy a car from my family with that same Bitcoin. My, my buying power increased dramatically because of what I did. Now you could say, well, well good thing you didn't spend that Bitcoin. Sure. Like the, my, my buying power increased. Now I'm at a point of maturity in my Bitcoin journey, if you want to call it, that not only am I holding onto some of that, but I'm also participating in stimulating that economy. So I think it's, it's just a, it's a, a milestone of how these things evolve. Um, 
there's a, um, a, a story about the Bitcoin pizza guy, the, the first ever yes. recorded transaction where Bitcoin was used as, uh, you know, to, to buy something was for two Papa John's pizzas. And this was back in like 2010 when Bitcoin didn't have any real value. Like nobody, it was just, it was literally currency you sent back and forth to your nerdy internet friends just to play around with. And this guy said, I'll send 10,000 Bitcoin to anybody on the line that orders two Papa John's pizzas to my house. Now, this guy wasn't stupid. He ended up by today's value paid $310 million for those two pizzas. His name's Laszlo. You can go look up. We, in Bitcoin, we celebrate Bitcoin Pizza Day every year. And you go out to the pizza joint with your friends and you, you pay for your pizza in Bitcoin, all this kind of stuff to celebrate that. That was the first time that Bitcoin had value. It was to exchange for a good service. And so he says this all the time. He goes, if I never did that, that Bitcoin would have perhaps never been worth $310 million. So it's a chicken and the egg problem, right? Like, do you want the Bitcoin to go up? Guess what? Those weren't the only Bitcoin he had. The dude's still filthy, stinking rich. If he didn't do that, then the Bitcoin he holds today might not make him super stinking, filthy rich. So it's it's definitely a chicken and the egg thing. And and, and that's, you're right in, in this free market economy of Bitcoin. Go ahead and hold it if you want. I'm just buying something that I think is we're at a critical moment of history where my 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 dad, my grandpa, my great grandpa, they all had this story about how much they used to be able to buy a Coke for. My great grandpa said he used to be able to get it for a nickel. My grandpa said a quarter. My dad said a dollar. Our family legacy was the currency that our family used every generation that they could get less and less with that currency. I believe that my story to my kids is those thousand sats, hey kiddos, I used to be able to buy nothing with those sats. Nobody took them. It wasn't worth anything. But look at you guys just put a down payment on a house with those thousand sats. Or you just bought a car with those thousand sats. The story of my family legacy, I believe, will be the exact opposite of what my fourth my forefathers passed down to me. To me, I don't know. Is that an investment? Is that a revolution? Is that a change of, of guard? I don't know what that is, but I know I want to participate in it. Well, and I think that's what's so hard to um, to kind of wrap your head around with this at force at first is it it really turns our lifelong experience on its head, right? Where uh, you know in our age range, at least you know we don't teach enough personal finance anymore um, to our kids, but uh, not not broadly. But it's like you you had this understanding of if you just let your money sit, you were losing money, right? Like you'd be better off to spend it than just let it sit. You better be earning some interest on it somewhere. You better be investing it or you buy real estate with it where with, with Bitcoin, again, presumably it's, it's the opposite, right? It's right now, as it sits, you're incentivized to, well, no, I'm, I'm better off. You know, there's an argument to, so it's, but you're right. It's that chicken and the egg. It's that if the pizza hadn't ever been bought, if you weren't feeding into that system, perpetuating the system right now, it's, it's being able to see where you're adding value versus losing value by using it right now. And again, it's like, it's just, we have that little micro, even right now, you know, we've all felt for these past couple of years with this just little, legitimately little bit of inflation, just more than we had been used to for a long time, but a little bit, you know, you look back at, you know, we started out talking about Weimar, like you would get paid throughout the day and you would leave your job to buy things in the afternoon because when you got off work, the money would be less than when you spent it in the middle of the day. And so there's always been that little bit of, you know, if you're not gaining interest, but this just kind of flips that on its head and you've got, it's, it's gotta be a change in mindset 
uh, really to to take advantage of it. So if yeah. uh, so, I get in, I stack some sats, I get a coin, you know, whatever level I want to play at. Where where's that live? The, the the coins that you stack yeah so the there's there's kind of a few different ways you can do it you can hold it on a, a an exchange with a third party i would highly suggest against doing that so you can go out today and sign up for coinbase or swan i i prefer swan bitcoin if people are looking for a place to buy it they have the lowest fees they're the most kind of bitcoin ethical company because there's lots of places where you can buy bitcoin but they don't kind of a little shady and, and that sort of thing. So um, I would highly suggest Swan. You can leave it on Swan. Um, if it's a small amount, that's fine. Don't worry about self-custody yet because um, we don't want to add a layer of complication or hesitation to people. If you're going to put $20 on there, go ahead and leave it on the exchange. That's fine. But when you get up to an amount of Bitcoin that you've accrued, that is is a significant value to you. Maybe it's $500, maybe it's $1,000 or more. Um, I would highly suggest self-custody and you can do that in a variety of ways um you can you can put it on a device that secures it cryptographically um it's as easy as sending an email it really is easy to transfer bitcoin around um and so if you have it on an exchange it's almost like the exchange is just like signing into facebook or something like that it's as easy as signing into any other website you've ever done and then sending a direct message from one website to the other that that's that's how easy it is to send value but in this case you're sending that value to your own your, yourself um it's like taking your dollars and putting it under your mattress except for those dollars under your mattress that bitcoin that's in your wallet is not it's immune to fire it's immune to somebody running in your house with a gun and putting a gun in your face and robbing you for it now if somebody does put the gun in your face you, you can choose to give them your bitcoin um but if they don't bitcoin isn't something that anybody needs to know you even have right like like uh, nobody's going to run into your house and and steal something like if i have cash under my mattress or if i have a vault somewhere the bad guy can shoot me in the face and then he has unlimited time to go around my house and find that, find that cash. Eventually he's going to find that pile of cash somewhere. He's going to find that gold and he's going to be able to take it with Bitcoin. It's a, it's a code in my head, the password to unlock, even if they find the device where my Bitcoin stored, they need to have the, the passcode for it. So it actually, it's a, it's a security feature built in where if you kill me or if you hurt me to where I can't tell you the code, then you've just forfeited the right to my thing. So unless somebody just wants to be violent for violence sake, they're not going to hurt you because if they do hurt you, they will also not get your money. So it, there's a lot of security features built into the way we store Bitcoin because it's not physical. One, nobody has to know you have it. And then two, there's no way for them to get it unless you agree for them to have it. So um, anyways, it can, it's, it's, it's very, very simple to do. I think that's people's biggest hesitation, but it's, it's, it's just like, having stored uh, pictures on your computer, or you can either store pictures on your computer or you can store it on the Apple iCloud. You can do both. One involves Apple having your, your pictures as well. One is you being in complete control of your pictures um, and just holding them yourself. So now when we, when we, cause we've talked a lot about the security of this and how the network and, and, and the decentralized nature and, and the nodes make thing, the system so secure, but then there's also, you know, with somewhat regular frequency, there's a, a major media report of a massive theft of crypto of some type. And so mm -hmm. is it accurate to say that when you hear those stories, it, it, it involves these exchanges? It's, yep. 
hundred percent of the time it's the exchanges. It, it, that's just exactly what it is. It's people trusting it um, to a third party. And there's, a, we have a, there's a saying in Bitcoin. It's if, if not your keys, not your coins. If you're, if somebody else is holding the keys to your vault, you don't even really own that thing. Like you technically can tell the world you own it, but we've actually seen that when these companies go bankrupt, their fine print even says that you don't own it. I have friends that had, you know, Bitcoin on this, this exchange, this place called BlockFi. It was a custodian where you could earn interest on your Bitcoin. Seemed like a great idea to people at the time. Um, but once they went bankrupt, the they got, you know, there's this you know mass lawsuit going on and everybody's finding out that the small print says that, yeah, you're actually lending that to them. And it's, you're essentially a creditor to that person. So they might owe you something in return, but you, you gave it to them free and clear of your own volition. It's, it's, it's not what you want as a Bitcoiner. You want to have complete sovereignty over your own money. You want to have the ability to send it to whoever and whomever you want at any given time. Now, is there, is there risk involved if you're self-holding though, in that if that's on a device, if that device is lost or destroyed, does that Bitcoin go with it? No. So the cool thing is that any device you store it on and you should have backups. I mean, if something as valuable as money, you should have a series of backups um, geographically and, you know, in, in physically different places um, in different mediums and things like that. But so that device that I was talking about, um, there's a thing called like a ledger or a hardware wallet um, that you can buy. And all that's doing is essentially storing your secret passphrase on that. Your Bitcoin aren't stored on that device. We think of it like a flash drive, like, oh, the files are on that thing. Nope. All that's being stored on that device is your is your key to unlock your vault that's on the blockchain. Your coins are actually always stored on the blockchain. You just have various keys and mechanisms to unlock your, your, your account on the blockchain. So if you have six devices that it's stored on and five of them, say all six of them get destroyed... It doesn't matter because if you still have the the key memorized, those 12 words memorized, then it doesn't matter if all the devices got destroyed. You still have the key in your head that unlocks the coin so you can just access access those at any time. Interesting. <clears throat> Is there, um, again, man, I, I really want to get, like, I want to give everybody like the 101 understanding. We're absolutely not going to get through everything. We can go another two hours. We're not going to get through everything, which is why you still need to buy Brian's book. Um, but, uh, and hey, maybe pay for it with sats. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I'm trying to think of, of what the next best question is. So, so it, Kale, I, I am running a little bit short okay. on time. I would love to do this again, but like, if, 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 if you can team me up with one more and we can, um, yeah, I'm so sorry. I didn't, man, today is... Uh, it's been it's been a little while, no, a little while, but I I could absolutely go four hours with you, man. I love talking to you about this. Yeah, dude, I I definitely love to come back to this. And listeners, if if you're left with questions, um, you know, Brian's on on the socials, um, you know, Twitter, of course, and all that stuff. We'll we'll, we'll cover that before we leave, and I'll put that in the show notes. But the the books on Amazon, and and so, uh, and you really did. It was tough to come up with questions for the episode because I'm I'm asking some things that you've already answered for me in the book, but that doesn't do the listener any service. But it really is. <laughs> Um, super, super thorough, uh, man, what would be the, the, the best, well, I'll, I'll tell you this. I, I, I have concerns. I, I still want to talk about security. I feel like that's the biggest hurdle for most things. So I've got two security related questions and, uh, from there we'll, we'll have to pick it up the, the next time we get together and point listeners to the book. But, um, the, uh, like quantum computing being on the horizon, 
concerns me with being a threat to the security of, of this and really any digital system um, in that all of our, all of our current um, security measures, all the quote unquote uncrackable codes, which we all know there's no uncrackable codes as it is. There's very, very difficult become very simple once we really get our, our heads wrapped around quantum computing and it's coming fast. Yeah. Um, so that concerns me. And then just, that this is, man, there were questions I wanted to get into with environment. Just read the book, people. He covers the environmental stuff really, really well. Um, but um, like the vulnerability of our electrical grid globally and specifically in the U.S., I'm like, if the lights are out, I feel like all my sats are useless. So if, if you've got time for both of those or if you just want to pick one, either one, I want to be respectful oh, of your time good, here. good. Um... So the quantum, no, those are, those are great because they're in the same lane. Quantum computing, um, now that's Bitcoin. It's almost like Bitcoin was built with, with um, improvements in computing in mind. So quantum computing being one of those. So we've, we've theorized about quantum computing for even far before Bitcoin was created. So I think it had this in mind. Um, that's what's important about Bitcoin. Bitcoin security like I said earlier, and hopefully this doesn't get lost. I'm sure it will get lost until people have heard it a third time and it kind of clicks. But Bitcoin's security is not derived from sophisticated code firewalls, like a, a wall that like if you can get past this thing, then you have access to the vault. It's the, it's by one way. It, security comes from its one way hashing algorithm. That thing we talked about earlier, that thing that generates a random number every 10 minutes um there's there's no key to all of bitcoin that exists anywhere there's only a key that exists to the next six and a quarter bitcoin that get created for the next block so the only thing you can ever hack or win or get is the next block the permission to to do that um what quantum computing poses is a threat is an ability to guess numbers much, much faster than all of the Bitcoin computers can online right now. So essentially quantum computers could just win the next bunch of blocks until other quantum computers existed. But like any arms race, AI, there's not one company developing AI, right? There's, it's very decentralized. There's, there's thousands of companies all over. So yes, there's going to be, you know, chat GPT that has a big breakthrough. And then there's gonna be some other company next year that has a huge breakthrough in AI. But as soon as they have a breakthrough, Three or four other companies are also going to have a breakthrough. There's always an arms race with this stuff. So I don't think that any one power or any one company is going to have a monopoly on quantum computing, at least for very long. And there's a lot of other things you can do, at least right now, that are much more worth your time with quantum computing. You can hack all the other financial systems in the world that are based on firewalls, right? Like our economic, like Equifax and all those different agencies that store really secure information. They have a firewall that if you get past it, boom, you get the honey, the, the honey pot with Bitcoin, all you're getting access to is the next 10 minutes. So there's just, you're, you're, you're blocked by physical time itself or not physical time, but actual time itself. So you can only rob six and a quarter Bitcoin every 10 minutes. And then the worst thing you can do for the network is it's called the denial of service attack. So you could say, haha, I'm taking those six and a quarter Bitcoin and I'm not letting any transactions go in the next block. We're denying service. So no Bitcoin transactions are functioning. So they're blocking people from sending it. But the cool thing is we already have layer two solutions. We already have this thing in Bitcoin, 
Bitcoin called the Lightning Network. So it takes the infrastructure of Bitcoin and it's a second layer built on top of it where it uses smaller, more uh, nimble nodes to send money back and forth. So even if, if some quantum computer is blocking transactions on the main layer of Bitcoin, we have secondary routes we can take um, to still send sats and transact in Bitcoin. So they'd be able to extract value for as long until another quantum computer could come along and try to guess those numbers equally as fast. And in, in short order, all of the Bitcoin miners, would they would be financially incentivized to upgrade to quantum computing because that's the only way that they themselves can enrich themselves by winning the next block rewards and continuing their business model. So I actually think the first quantum computers will come online by Bitcoin companies. I wouldn't be surprised if Bitcoin mining companies were the ones that are looking for an edge and they're they're going to do that. Um, and if they're a Bitcoin company, they actually probably would include Bitcoin transactions. So they'd be winning a bunch of blocks in a row, but the network would continue to function, that sort of thing. Um, the other the other question you had was about uh, not quantum computing, but security. Yeah, um, just the stability of, of the electrical grid, period. The electrical grid. Great question. Our, electric, our electrical grid is also very decentralized. I think people use the argument of, if an EMP went off and the entire grid of the United States went down, um, then we'd be in trouble. Well, yes. So people in that region would have trouble perhaps when we can get into white. That's also, they're somewhat immune to that. Um, but the, the, the Bitcoin blockchain is worldwide. And so Bitcoin everywhere else, the blocks would still be produced every 10 minutes. Coins would still be mined. It would function anywhere. You could knock out 90% of the world and the 10% of the world that still exists would still be maintaining the Bitcoin blockchain. It's part of the beauty of Bitcoin. It's protected by different uh, you know, geopolitical powers, right? So in China, they may not like it, but in the United States, we have the freedom to do it here. So, so, you know, even if a government decided that we're going to ban Bitcoin, you're protected by different, you know, political, um, you know, political protections or civil rights and things like that. So whether the electrical grid goes down or whether government tyranny comes against it, it has this decentralized nature that makes it so somewhere in the world, Bitcoin is always functioning. And if you want to tap into that network, um, yeah, maybe maybe my the, the lines, the power lines that come into my house are, are you know blown out because of an EMP or because of electrical outage or something like that. Well, I have solar generators. I have gas generators that will give me electricity for the next six weeks. So I'll be, be able to continue to operate. It's hard to believe that in the United States, especially, you know, in California, that we would be down, the power would be down for more than six weeks. But I have ways to provide power for my home and my family for a considerable period of time. Um, and I would assume if the, the electricity is out, the Internet's probably out. You also need the Internet for, for Bitcoin. But guess what? We can actually transmit Bitcoin via satellite through the Blockstream satellite. So, and, uh, and Neuro, um, not Neuralink, whatever, Elon Musk, Starlink, yeah. Starlink. I believe you can actually send Bitcoin via Starlink through Blockstream satellites. So even if you don't have internet, if you, if you can find a way to produce electricity, I have a solar generator, so I can do that kind of consistently for as long as I need to. Um, and then I also have access to be able to transmit that data somehow around the world. So even if I'm one of the people that's in the area that was affected, everywhere else in the world is maintaining the network, and I'm still able to tap into that network through kind of my, my various... Now, it's maybe going to be a little bit more clunky. I need to be a little bit more resourceful. But in that emergency that happens that is probably never going to happen, I'm still prepared for that outcome, and uh, there's a way around it. Awesome. Well, dude, I could... 
I mean, we're going to have to book part two, part three, part four. Uh, would love to have you back. There's just a ton we haven't gotten to. So appreciate you coming on, man. This was fantastic. Um, uh, you know, I, I can't promise I'm going to spend my evening checking out Swan and stacking some sats, but it's, uh, it's definitely on the radar there. Listeners for sure. Pick up the book, Bitcoin evangelism. I know it's on Amazon. Is there some place that it's more advantageous to you if they buy it someplace that takes a, a smaller cut from you? Yeah. I make more money if you buy it through my, my website, but to be honest, like it actually helps the, you know, just to, to get the sales boosted because they see more people. I get higher on the, uh, the bestsellers list and stuff like that. If I sell it privately, then, then I get more money, but I don't get uh, as much clout. So the clout helps. And, uh, you know, we're in an Instagram vanity culture. So being able to brag about being, uh, you know, so at one point it, it's somewhere in the top 100 books on monetary policy in the world right now. Um, but it, I think the highest it ever got to was number six in the world oh, wow. on monetary policy. And it's funny because Bitcoin is volatile. You know, when the Bitcoin price goes up, my book sales go up too. All of a sudden people are interested in it. So that's fun. Like, so I think the cool thing is that there's more and more people finding this stuff and, and not just buying Bitcoin and being like, I'm going to speculate on it, but people that are buying it, but then buying into the tenants of it. And that's the stuff that's actually going to, by Kale buying some Bitcoin and participating in this circular economy, my family and my kids are now incrementally more protected because now there's one more node, there's one more person on that network that I have access to that I can exchange for resources, goods and services and things like that. That's how, you know, uh, circular economies work. So um, yeah, really, really good. And just one of the random factoid, right? Real quick before we get off the, um, I can't say which bank it is, but the head, the CEO of private banking for one of the biggest banks in the world is actually reading the book right now. So, um, I, like, I got really nervous cause I go hard after bankers in, in the book <laughs> a little bit. Um, so, but, but it's really fascinating to see that even some of the most powerful people in the world are, are, are digging into this stuff right now. I think we're, we're at the cusp of, of a really big change in a very positive direction. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Well, listeners, be sure to pick up a copy. Uh, find Brian on uh, on Twitter and Instagram. We'll put those links in the show notes and give him a, a follow. And uh, we'll we'll get you back here on the podcast, hopefully in the in the near future. And uh, really appreciate it, man. Great time, listeners. Appreciate you tuning in, sticking with us as always. Uh, you know, if you wouldn't mind whatever app you're on right now, somewhere on there is a follow button, a subscribe button, a thumbs up, a stars rating, all that good stuff. All that little bit helps extend the Solid 7 Podcast Network, which is really why we're all here after all. So uh, if you wouldn't mind doing that for us and stop by the website, solid7podcast.com, solid7podcast.com, all kinds of fun and merriment there for you. And until next week, we're out. The Solid 7 Podcast is a proud affiliate of GORUCK. GORUCK designs and builds the toughest gear on the planet, tested and proven at thousands of GORUCK events held all over the world and led by current and former Special Forces combat veterans. The GORUCK brand stands for Building Better Americans, the Special Forces Way of Life, and a life-or-death approach to building the world's toughest gear. Visit Solid7Podcast.com and click on the GORUCK link to learn more about their gear and events and a portion of every purchase and every event registration you make will go to support us here at the Solid 7 Podcast.